What's going on? I am here with Dr. Paul Saldino. Uh, and so, Paul, when I introduce these podcasts, we're talking to global Bitcoiners. So we tracked our audiences, half non-U.S. And so I never know if people know the guests that we're bringing on. We've had an NFL running back, Dave Portnoy, Jack Dorsey, and now you. So my intro for Paul, um, Paul is a doctor, a medical professional, who was once a vegan and is now really pioneering, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, the carnivore animal-based, and I know you're veering away from carnivore diet, but rethinking nutrition, and you've changed my life, man. I am a huge fan. Uh, we'll talk about what I've picked up from your work, um, but one of the pioneers in the nutrition space and trying to reverse what has been a crisis in our country and globally. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, and I don't fucking know, man. I'm so, I'm just, I'm so <laughs> overwhelmed with emotion that, that I'll get to talk to you. I'm stoked to be here. Thanks for having me, man. I mean, that's a great intro. That's a pretty hallowed company. Um, yeah, I'm good friends with a, at least Jack Dorsey. He's a good friend of mine. So we know, we know some of the same people. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. We'll get into that. Um, where I want to start. So the reason I, I'm so excited about this podcast is because you've come to certain conclusions through science, through medical science, and I've come to the same conclusions through uh, financial literacy and money, and that our food is broken. I believe that the money broke it. I don't know if you believe that or don't believe that, but you came to that conclusion through a different avenue and a different angle. Let's start there because whenever I'm talking to my girlfriend or I'm talking to my parents, I'm like, did you see what Paul posted on Instagram? Kale is bullshit. And they go, oh, some guy on the Internet told you that not to eat vegetables? I'm, no, it's not some guy. He's a doctor. Put some respect on his name. So can you kind of take us through the journey over the last half decade and what happened in your life to lead you to what you do now? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, I'll, I'll go back even a little further than five years. I grew up in a medical family. My dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. And, but we grew up eating standard American diet. You know, my dad was not taught in medical school. He went to Georgetown Medical School, you know, really good medical school. He was not taught anything about nutrition, unhealthy growing up. He was overweight, didn't sleep well. There was really no focus on nutrition in my house other than maybe fat fearing, which was pretty common in the 80s and 90s, which is when I grew up in Virginia. So I had eczema, which is an autoimmune skin condition that gives you like this kind of itchy rash. Not, not crippling, but it's annoying. Connected with that, I had asthma. So I had to use inhalers as a kid. And I never had any bad asthma attacks, but it was something that my parents medicated me for. So growing up, I was given applesauce with theater, which is theophylline in it. They used to give people basically a cousin of caffeine. It's a methylxanthine compound that you know, dilates the bronchioles of your lungs a little bit. So I was over-medicated as a kid. I remember being forced to take inhalers. As a kid, I remember being forced to take medications. And, you know, my parents, I think, never, despite their best intentions, never th could imagine that my problems might have been reversible. It was just the paradigm that they grew up in that is still true today in Western medicine is you are sick because you have bad genetics and... You can often see things like this running in families. You are sick because you have bad genetics. And whether it's eczema, asthma, allergies like I had, whether it's obesity, whether it's diabetes, whether it's gout, whether it's autoimmune thyroid disease, whether it's psoriasis, whether it's depression, whatever it is you have, it's because you have bad genetics. So you are absolved of any sort of responsibility for the choices you are making or your environment it has nothing to do with this. So I went to college, took a bunch of time off after college because I got kind of burned out, did some interesting stuff that we can talk about if you want, like basically outdoor stuff. Mm. was a ski bum, 
mountaineering through like the Pacific Crest Trail, which probably changed the way I think about things. I think being in nature is critical for humans and it, it definitely probably changed my mindset in general. Eventually I went back to school to become a physician assistant. So first I was a PA, I worked in cardiology for four years. And immediately upon working in medicine, I just wasn't happy as a PA. I realized that we weren't actually treating the root cause of illness. It was just a lot of, I mean, it, it was a lot of kind of posture and pretense around, oh, we're giving people this medication and we're doing the best for them. But uh, people weren't asking questions that were interesting to me or they weren't really pursuing the answers to those questions, which is what the heck in cardiology, what the heck causes cardiovascular disease? What causes heart attacks? Is cholesterol really bad for us? And all of this has kind of come back to me for a circle now, but I was really interested, like what causes hypertension? What causes diabetes? What causes heart attacks? I remember asking my dad when I was 12 or 13, what causes heart attacks? He said, nobody knows. That's not an acceptable answer. This is my dad. He's a doctor. He's supposed to know. So I went from being a physician assistant in cardiology. I went back to medical school, the University of Arizona, and kind of knew. I, I kind of felt like I was a little bit of a double agent. Like I was already skeptical of the Western medical paradigm in medical school. And I practiced for four years as a PA. So I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. And I had a different perspective than the first time that I did my medical training as a PA. And I was, you know, but again, like medical school is medical school. You have to take the boards. You learn what's taught in the textbooks. It's not, it's, there's nothing about root cause. There's no attention to nutrition other than gluten intolerance. That's the only nutrition thing that I learned in medical school. Did my residency at the University of Washington, no attention to nutrition with regard to any sort of medical issue. And so throughout all of this, I'm just getting more and more frustrated. And I'm asking supervising physicians, residents, people I'm rotating with, what causes this? No one understands, no one knows. It's not part of the zeitgeist. It's not part of the culture to even ask. And I've done content now, kind of going back and throwing all of the education that I had under the bus, going into hospital cafeterias, talking about what's fed to our doctors. So it's, it's not surprising that you know, patients are fed garbage food when they're sick and recovering, quote unquote. Hospitals are feeding physicians and nurses and families of patients garbage food in their cafeterias. There's just, there's just no awareness. It's, it's fascinating to me. It's just a complete amnesia slash lack of any sort of awareness of what food is doing to us as humans. So it was in my residency that I got really interested in all of this because my eczema came back with a vengeance. And in, in uh, medical school, I also had pretty bad eczema. Um, I was doing a lot of jujitsu at the time and it was so bad on my knees and elbows that I couldn't really roll. I was getting, it was getting infected like mm -hmm. impetigo um, from just being on the mats. And so it was frustrating. And I, I've been intentional about my diet for probably the last 10 to 15 years of my life or more. But it wasn't until residency when I had a really bad eczema flare. And at the time I was eating paleo. So I was eating vegetables, I was eating nuts, I was eating seeds, I was eating salads and olive oil and, and some meat and a pretty good diet, but I was still getting bad eczema. And I thought, okay, what is going wrong here? I heard about this carnivore diet that cuts out all vegetable foods, all plant foods. And I thought that's fascinating. I always wanted to experiment with it. As you mentioned in the introduction, I was a vegan maybe 15 or at this point, probably about 16 years ago. Okay. So I love doing these self-experiments and thinking, how can I improve my experience of life, my mental clarity, my sleep, my libido, my physicality, my recovery from exercise, whatever exercise I'm doing at the time that I find enjoyable, how can I perform the best in that? So let's back up a step. So vegan diet for me 16 years ago caused me to lose about 15 to 20 pounds of lean muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So I was very skinny. Right now, I'm, I'm about 5'9", 165, 170 pounds. When I was a vegan, I was 142 pounds with mm. the same height, give or take. And so I was, and it was all muscle mass. I mm. actually just got a DEXA scan today. I'm 10.5% fat, 
body fat. I was probably something similar when I was a vegan. So it's a muscle mass loss as yeah. a vegan. I had horrible gas. I mean, there's like hilarious <laughs> stories I could tell you about girlfriends I had at the time <laughs> and how bad it was to be around me. It was just, it was pretty, pretty comically bad. And, um, and I, I, I probably pooped like two to three times a day. Um, and it was just a bunch of vegetables that I was eating. So vegan, the vegan diet didn't fix my eczema. didn't fix my eczema. didn't fix my allergies. Um, and it caused a lot of probably nutrient deficiencies that would have become more pronounced if I'd done it longer than six or seven months, which is what I did raw vegan. So after vegan, I was paleo. I ate meat for a while. I gained some of the muscle mass back, which was good. But then I still had these allergic conditions, these autoimmune conditions. And autoimmunity is so common in Western medicine. So many of the conditions that we suffer from are autoimmune in nature, whether it's autoimmune thyroid disease, any of the skin issues, even acne has an autoimmune component. I think that mental health issues, depression, anxiety, these have autoimmune components, neuroinflammation, so that's the immune system in the brain. So this autoimmunity is fascinating. And when I couldn't fix mine, I thought there's something wrong here. So I thought, let's go extreme, cut out all plant foods and see how I feel. Um, to fast forward, so long story short, getting rid of all the plant foods basically fix the eczema, never comes back in any significant way now. And but you're still in residency at this point? That was in residency, yeah. So I did carnivore, strict carnivore for about a year and a half. I was in residency when I started it, about five and a half years ago now this was. Right, because yeah. my assumption would be, I mean, from what I understand, residency is the most stressful portion of medical school. It's when you're grinding 80, 120-hour weeks, you're doing clinicals, I mean, you're, you're in it. Uh, so I imagine there's a correlation between eczema flare-ups and stress, Yes. Now, that's true. And I think mine was triggered by food. I remember specifically eating like a bunch of mushroom extracts, not like psilocybin mushrooms, but <laughs> reishi, chaga, lion's mane. And I think that in connection with other things I was eating, nuts, seeds was probably the main thing. Stress can trigger eczema, but stress is kind of this amorphous voodoo. Can trigger everything. It's a voodoo yeah. hand wavy yeah. thing, you know, and it's not great for you. But I think that at that point, that was my third or fourth year of residency. So you do four years of medical school and then I did four years of residency. And it wasn't super stressful. There were times that I was doing call shifts or shifting between days and nights. So certainly could have contributed. But I think that it was mostly the food that triggered it at that point. And so when carnivore, cut out all the plant foods, eczema gets better. Fast forward a little more, a year and a half down the road, um, I developed kind of like muscle cramps. I was going to the gym and climbing, rock climbing indoors. And I can't really even climb because I'm getting cramps in my muscles, start to get some sleep disturbances. So basically what I learned from that is that for a lot of people doing a strictly ketogenic diet leads to um, issues with electrolyte maintenance. And I wasn't taught this in medical school, but not to get too technical, but like insulin is released when you eat protein or carbohydrates. It doesn't really get released when you eat fat for the most part. And you need that insulin signal to tell your kidneys to conserve electrolytes, specifically things like sodium, potassium, chloride, magnesium, et cetera. And so a lot of people on ketogenic diets don't eat enough protein. Even though I was eating a significant amount of protein, it clearly wasn't enough signal to my kidneys because of the insulin. Insulin gets vilified, wrongly in my opinion. So, and I was getting massive, massive electrolyte insufficiencies, all sorts of problems. So I was having problems going to sleep, problems staying asleep, palpitations, heart arrhythmias. So then, you, then I kind of transitioned to what I would call animal-based. And that's how I've been eating probably for the last four years, which is meat and organs, which I still believe are the center of the human diet. And we can talk about why that's controversial. And then I added back carbohydrates in the form of fruit, which I would think of as the least toxic plant foods. We can dive into any of this more as like, you know, versus vegetables. Vegetables being the leaves, stems, roots, and seeds of plants. Fruit being the colorful, generally sweet part of plants that they want you to eat. So including fruit and honey in my diet as sources of carbohydrates, 
Um, I haven't had any eczema flares, no asthma, no none of the allergies, none of my autoimmune stuff has come back, and I'm able to maintain. I feel like a normal human again. You know, I have mm-hmm. I have full muscle fullness. I have recovery. I have good sleep. I don't have heart palpitations. I don't have any of this stuff. So that's like the story in a nutshell. Incredible. But but the the underlying vein through all of it is just this. I think I'm just really. I think I'm more of an engineer in my mind than a, than a, like a, a carpenter. And, uh, you know, there are some parts of medicine where you're kind of a carpenter. You're given this this blueprint and they say, just make this birdhouse. And I don't really want to just make a birdhouse. I want to understand, like, why did you put the roof there and do it this way? And I, I really am fascinated by these questions of what causes humans to become sick and how do we get well? And like you were hinting at, I mean, our health is, is abysmal mm-hmm. as humans. And I think that this this underlying sort of subtle propaganda that you get taught in medical school, which permeates our medical system because doctors are the ones inculcating all their patients and all of us with this, is that, like I said, you are sick because of your bad genetics. And that, to me, is 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 really an injustice to people because it robs them of the agency to actually change it. So that's mm-hmm. what's interesting to me that in my life, I've seen this and I've seen this over and over now. And what's so exciting is being able to tell people, hey, whatever you're suffering from, that is fixable. And I think that that... What I am interested in is th- this one path to get there. There's a lot of paths to get there, but this is a fascinating path. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an incredible story, man. Congratulations oh, on <laughs> all you've achieved. Um, and for me, hearing that story, there's two takeaways. Uh, and one of the reasons I started this podcast is there's one, there's an avenue to be healthier. And that's obvious. And we should talk about some of the science and the medical behind that and the reasonings that you believe that and hopefully some of the devil's advocates and ways that you would argue against yourself. The other is there seems to be like plain undiscovered truths is that you spent God knows how how much on education from renowned universities and did all the school that a human could possibly fucking do. Right. Like isn't becoming a doctor like you got to you got to really I haven't done a homework assignment since I was a senior in high school. (laughs) You did so much homework. Um, and it didn't teach you what you now believe. And there seems to be a clouded and you're, you're hinting at it in very polite ways. When I watch all your work, it's very polite. You want you want to be cordial. But it is curious at best the fact that you tried to learn what's best for humans and you then had to teach it to yourself. Right. Those are my two takeaways. So one of my questions for you is, do you are you ever curious beyond the science of what is driving, when did humans start becoming unhealthy? Have we been unhealthy under what you understand for thousands of years, hundreds of years, decades? Do you have a thesis and a theory as to why university isn't addressing the problem or curious about the problem, why science isn't authentic and real? By definition, thi- science is a way of asking questions, not a way of telling you where not to look. I'm getting fired up, but like, what, like what's your take on that? Yeah, so in answer to your first question, it's pretty clear looking at the data that we've become a lot less healthy in the last 100 years or so. I mean, you can look back at, I mean, there was a guy in the early 1930s, 1940s named Weston A. Price who was a dentist, and he traveled all over the world, wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It was fascinating because he was really kind of the first Indiana Jones of nutrition, and he has these brilliant pictures in the book of indigenous cultures all over the world, whether it's Sumatra, Indonesia, Ireland. There, at the, in, in the early 1940s and 1930s, there was this intersection of indigenous cultures that were sort of becoming, quote, westernized. And you could find people with similar genetics of the same lineage and the same generation. And some people were still eating like their ancestors had, no processed foods, really no processed sugar, no seed oils, no processed grains, and animal foods, right? So not shunning animal fat, eating animal meat, all across the board, people were getting fat-soluble vitamins from raw milk, eggs, meat, and organs. And then you could look at their 
contemporaries, completely parallel humans, often from the same family or parallel families, same age, same genetics, who were eating foods from the westernized world and they were completely different health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So there's this, that's, that should have been taught in medical school. Anthropology should be taught in medical school. Weston A. Price, nutrition and physical degeneration should be taught in medical school, but it's not. Why? I think it probably has to do, and this is where you kind of venture into the conspiratorial realm, and I know that's sort of a, that word is so captured because it has such a pejorative uh, association, and it shouldn't have it. You know, I, think, I think conspiracy today in 2023, conspiracy ideas are just, it just means that you're thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, but, it, you know, I guess surrounding the JFK assassination, it was sort of meant to be a, a negative word, but conspiratorial or, or just whatever word you want to use. So my perspective, my perspective is that this is pharmaceutical company driven, that, that who, who determines the curriculum of a medical school, mostly pharmaceutical companies, because through underhanded ways, not because they're paying the medical school directly, but because they're funding over 75% of the studies in medicine. So if you don't have any studies with food, there's nothing to teach the medical students about, right? right. But there are some, I mean, this has been one of the most interesting sets of information for me to discover since medical school is how much nutrition research is out there and the stuff that you don't get taught. Like you're mostly taught about how to use drugs. And so I don't know exactly who determines what's on the boards, but in medical school, you live and die by step one and step two, mostly step one. And so you need to know what's on the step exams. And what's on the step exams is histology, pathology, and pharmacology. They don't, there's no freaking nutrition on the step exams. So you need to know your drugs. You need to know the interactions. And medicine is about how to diagnose something, so how to pigeonhole it. And then once you have a diagnosis, it's easy because you can just know what medication to give. That's, that's, that's the knee-jerk reaction. That's the decision tree. There's no third option, which is, okay, you're going to test somebody's blood sugar. You're going to test their, um, maybe do an oral glucose tolerance test, test the hemoglobin A1C, make a diagnosis of diabetes. Option one, metformin, sulfonylurea drugs, whatever drugs you want to use. Option two is give them a diet. I mean, there's, there's like, they, get, they pay lip service to the fact that there's some sort of diet for diabetics, but it doesn't work, and so nobody uses it, right? Because the diet for diabetics is just usually eat less, move more, eat a bunch of whole grain foods, no real attention to anything at a, at a molecular, cellular level. It's, the, the same is true with almost every chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, but when you get into like the autoimmune diseases and you look at like a rheumatologist, which is the doctor that would usually diagnose an autoimmune disease, there's no option three, there's no, I mean, I've had a lot of friends that have had GI issues, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, yeah. inflammatory bowel diseases. They go to gastroenterologists and invariably they're told, diet doesn't have anything to do with this. I've met people in airports who have pictures of really, really bad plaque psoriasis, which is similar to eczema, but different, mm -hmm. different in a lot of ways. It's a very distinct sort of salmon colored plaque on the skin and they've been to dermatologists and the dermatologists will say diet has nothing to do with this and then they tell me the story of finding an animal-based diet cutting out some foods and it gets better and it's just it's so interesting that invariably doctors will tell people diet has nothing to do with this there's no option there's no there's no real uh, ability for people to do that so i think it must be driven by this pharmaceutical complex this medico pharmaceutical complex which is i mean it's hard to find evidence of this but a, a healed patient is a lost customer in a lot of ways. And I have a friend mm. who used to work at, at Mayo Clinic and, you know, he's told me kind of off the record that in, in board meetings, they would say like, we don't want to teach diabetics about diet because that means there's less people coming mm -hmm. to, to where we're treating people. And I mean, I don't think the Mayo Clinic can sue me for saying that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what he told me that like he was at a preeminent hospital and there was actual discussion of 
like not wanting to get people out of the sort of the, the circular revolving door of insulin therapy and these for diabetes. So I think that it's just there's there's no profit in a, it. No one makes money. Administrative perspective isn't isn't one of the like leading things that hospitals look at is readmission rates to determine whether or not you're a good or not good hospital. Well, that's for people that are inpatients, mm. but there's also outpatient care. That's like this revolving door, right, with chronic care. So the chronic care is also going to make them money. Yeah, I, right. you know. So yeah, it's both. That's right. It's m mostly this like outpatient chronic revolving door care where people are coming back to the doctor repeatedly. They're getting insulin. They're getting prescriptions. This kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, they do look at inpatient admissions and readmissions and people getting worse. But mostly, what I'm talking about is like chronic outpatient mm -hmm. care that's like in this flowing system. And then on the note of, of diet versus pharmaceuticals, if, if that's an accurate way to frame it, um, would it be wrong to say that, that diet is not standardized uh, in the sense that if we were to all diet the same way, that we would all have a similar outcome of, of that diet? Like, and the reason why I ask that is if we were to sit, to sit down here and take Adderall, we would all be wired for all intents and purposes. We'd all feel similar effects of that drug and drugs are relatively standardized more or less is diet the same way well people do have different reactions to drugs so i think i know what you're getting at but i'll just say that people do metabolize drugs differently the same dosage for different people is going to be different for sure but diet for me is interesting because there is this kind of idea that well maybe a plant-based diet works for this person and maybe a carnivore diet works i think for this that's person. what confuses people I, it is it is i think it is a confusing thing the way i see this is there's a couple of ways to go with this answer, but I'll start here, that if you look at other species of animals, there's generally a species-appropriate diet. And when species live in nature, not to get too hippy-dippy, but when species live in nature, they generally eat a certain diet. And, and in, even in zoo settings, this is understood, that like you have to feed the animal a species-appropriate diet or it will not thrive. There's, there's anecdotes of zookeepers not feeding lions organs. And the lions become lethargic and they don't even want to mate. They just don't, they don't have sex. They don't make babies. The lion populations are dying or just becoming kind of decrepit in zoos because zookeepers are just feeding them muscle meat. And they're not feeding them organs. Mm. And they realize like, hey, wait, the species appropriate diet for a lion is they're going to get a kill and eat the whole animal. They're going to eat the organs. Lo and behold, you feed the lion the bones, the marrow, the cartilage, liver, heart, kidney, whatever they're going to eat from the animal. They're, they're, they're super healthy again. They start having babies. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do as animals and they're more resilient, you can tell they're healthier animals. So I think that there is clearly in zoology a species-appropriate diet kind of dictated by what we would have gotten or what these species would have gotten in nature. It just kind of works, right? And I think it's the same way for humans. We are homo sapiens. So as far as I know, there's not been any sort of shift. And this is kind of a debate at what point you get a new species arising. But they, there's no difference in species. Like there used to be, right? There was Homo habilis, Homo erectus. There were Denisovans. There were all sorts of species of humans, Homo, the Homo lineage, before or an, and even contemporary to Homo sapiens, which has probably been around 500,000 years. But if you look at our species, Homo sapiens, I think there's probably a species-appropriate diet for humans. And if you feed humans a species-appropriate diet, I believe that humans of that species will for the most part, 99.9% mm. do well. Now, within that, you know, I don't, I don't think there's an exact diet for you uh, for that, that you and I will both thrive on exactly, right? For mm -hmm. me, like, I've just learned for me that, like, if I eat some foods, I don't feel great. And you might be able to tolerate those foods. Like, even though I'm a fan of fruit, I don't really feel great when I eat pineapple sometimes. I get this weird feeling in the back of my throat. You know, who knows? 
So there's some things that might be different for some people. Some people might be more sensitive to things than others. Like when I eat almonds, I get horrible gas and cramping and I don't feel great, but maybe you can tolerate that a little better than me. But I think in general, that there probably is a species-appropriate diet for humans, and that's what's interesting to me. Not that I want to prescribe that to every human letter of the law, you can only eat these foods, right. but just giving people a framework to think, like, this is what makes the most sense evolutionarily, anthropologically. And then if you look at the science, it makes sense from a nutritionalist. You can, you can kind of think, you can arrive at that perspective, and this has kind of been my journey, via looking at anthropology, evolutionary evidence, ethnography, or you can arrive at that by looking, the kind of like reverse engineering, looking at the nutrients that humans need to thrive mm-hmm. and thinking about how you get there. So there's two ways to arrive. And for me, that, that arrives at like the exact same point, which is this animal-based diet. And we can dig into that more of meat, organs, fruit, honey, raw dairy, give or take. So that's interesting to me from both of those perspectives. Yeah. I, so I do want to dig into that a little bit because I, so for the audience, I got a ton of data that is going to back some of my claims. I prepared for this <laughs> podcast. But before, I want to hear you make the case for the diet that you think is most optimal for humans because how old are you, by the way? I'm 46. Okay, 46. So we're 29. I was born in 94. So I can speak through my own experience with my generation, with my friends who I grew up with. And we grew up together. Everybody uh, needs cannabis to go, go to bed, takes Xanax, drinks too much, um, eats, thinks that in order to look skinny, you need to eat salad, sweet green, <laughs> chipotle. No, I'm dead serious. I'm serious. It's because when I started to go down this myself, um, and an extreme amount of depression, an extreme amount of insomnia, an extreme amount of anxiety, you walk into a bar with kids my age, nobody does not have an anxiety problem. Nobody's not depressed. And uh, when I started to go through this and I started to self-reflect and look around, it's sad and it's terrifying. And then I started to really figure out to my own that diet kind of fixes a lot of this. I have to be super careful because if you pitch it as a silver bullet, then people discredit you. Um, but seriously, I, so my diet, I, I drink, uh, I whisk raw eggs in the morning. I got that from our mutual friend, Jack Dorsey. I eat liver. Uh, and then I eat about a pound and a half of ribeye usually or grass-fed ground beef, uh, raw dairy. And my fruits are banana and blueberries, although that part I'm not super confident in. Like getting fresh, like seasonal fruit in Chicago is kind of brutal. Um, and, and honey. And that's it. And I run because I love it about five and a half miles a day. Uh, and that's what I do. And I try to consume the ribeyes uh, as close to raw as I can enjoy. And Paul, when I tell you, anxiety, depression, I used to have, I couldn't sleep. And it's fixed. Uh, It really is. And so um, I want to hear you walk us through what you think is optimal. And if you could provide like a general audience that maybe has never heard of you before, how a diet exceeds just getting a six pack um, and what being a healthy human is and the nutrients required for that and some of the correlations with everything I just descri- described because I g- am growing up in what I consider to be a notoriously sick generation. Yeah, I think that it's, it's interesting because we, we see a lot of young people your age and overtly they look skinny. They might have a six-pack. But when you get to know them and when you dig down, they have gastroesophageal reflux called GERD, so they're refluxing. They might have insomnia. They have anxiety. Who knows? Maybe they even have suicidality with depression or other issues that aren't really talked about. They could have constipation, diarrhea. They could have 
gas and bloating, things you can't see from the outside. Mm -hmm. So we are a very sick population at, at, across all ages, even kids. You know, we know this. So let's talk about let's talk about those two avenues. So let's talk about the anthropology a little bit, and then I'll talk about the reverse engineering mm -hmm. from the nutrients that humans need. And that's kind of how you arrive at this at, at this idea. So the anthropology is quite fascinating. I spent time with the Hadza in Tanzania a couple of years ago. They're some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers on the planet. There's only a few thousand Hadzabe uh, even on the planet and probably only a few hundred that are still living as true hunter-gatherers. And they're not perfect, but they're they're really living as hunter-gatherers. I mean, I so it's you go to Tanzania, it's by Kilimanjaro, you drive like four hours, then you take another car like 45 minutes into the bush. They're nomadic. They don't live in houses. They live in these thatched huts that they build and break down. They don't have cell phones. They don't use money. They generally wear animal skins. And they're super friendly and really, they're really happy to see us. Now, they are contacted by Westerners, but the fact that they have been contacted by Westerners means that they, their land is preserved because the government sees them as kind of a tourist attraction. So it's not perfect, but it's the closest thing I've ever seen to like a time machine. It's like 50,000 years ago. This is pr pretty close. The closest mm -hmm. thing I'm ever going to see to what a human would li live like, right? So they have, there's, you know, in this tribe that I was with for a week, there were probably 20 or 30 men, 20 or 30 women and some children. And every single day, the first thing that the men want to do is go hunt. They live for this. This is their favorite thing ever. When they're not hunting, they're making bows themselves from trees. They're making arrows, and they're practicing with their bows, or they're doing other things around the camp. But generally, they're, they're making bows, and they're, and they're straightening the arrows. We go hunting. They have multiple different types of arrows. They have arrows with poison on them. I actually went to get the poison with them. We made it together. They're like, don't touch your face. Don't put this in your mouth. <laughs> That's or you'll, awesome. Or you'll get like deep shit. Yeah, it's like a neurotoxin. <laughs> yeah, I have some video that I could send you. It's this, the foot's called an elephant foot plant. And they're like, don't, don't, you got to wash your hands, like, or you'll get really sick. And you could throw up, maybe even get like painful, like mortally sick if you have too much of this. Mm -hmm. So they have some arrows with like little, little, little pieces of wood on them for birds so that the, the arrow just hits the bird and kind of stuns it. And they'll shoot at birds. They'll shoot at small monkeys or they'll use the bigger arrows if they want to shoot at large animals. And they'll just try and nick the animal with the, the, the neurotoxic poison. And so we go out hunting with them. And the hunting day was probably 10 to 12 hours. We covered probably 15 miles. And they're just, they're just cruising. They're just walking. And then they see something and they sprint. We've got the dogs. So eventually we get to the place where the baboons are. Uh, baboons are the main thing that they hunt now because their lands are being encroached upon by other tribes that are nomadic. The the Maasai and the Datoga will will be pastoralists, so they have they'll have goats and stuff, and they'll bring them onto the Hadza land, which kind of messes up the actual migrations of wild animals in this mm -hmm. land. So the Hadza don't have a lot of hunting grounds anymore. So we hunt baboons, and when I'm with them, they actually get a baboon, they kill it, and we're within. Within 30 minutes, the baboon is on a fire which they've made from scratch. They don't have lighters; they just use a bow drill which they fashion on the spot and they, and they make a fire and we're eating the organs. They, they've got the baboon on the, on the fire. They're burning off the hair. They cut it open. They're handing the organs around. We're eating these cooked organs with the, with, with the tribe. And it's, it's incredible. They're just like, they just want to share with us. And then, and then they find a beehive in a tree and they've cracked it and they're, we're sharing and we're eating honey. So these are probably their favorite foods are the, the first organs and then the honey. We bring the baboon back to camp. It's shared among the whole tribe that night. The women get a portion of the meat and the next morning, I'm eating the brain of the of the baboon with the guy that killed the baboon. He's like providing it as like a. It's like his, it's his his his, his pride. You know, yeah. he he gets rewarded with these key organs, the brain. So if you look at cultures like the Hadza, or you look at the Hadza specifically, there was an anthropologist named Frank Marlowe who did a whole book about this, and there's papers written about this. They have five foods that they prefer, and they they're ranked. You can tell. So like their favorite food is honey. <laughs> for both the men and the women. The men rank, rank meat as their second favorite food. For the women, 
there's berries, there's meat, and there's um, the baobab are probably all tied for like that second, third, and fourth mm. spot. And the, the least favorite food of the Hadza is the tubers, which they'll eat kind of as a, a fallback food is what Frank Marlowe calls it. But those are their main foodstuffs. Yep. They don't eat plants. Really, they don't eat vegetables. <coughs> they don't eat leaves. They don't really eat seeds unless they're starving. I did not see them eat a single leaf or seed when I was there. And they could have because they, they, I think they're known to eat the baobab seeds if they're starving, but generally they just eat the baobab fruit. It's from this big tree called the tree of life. And it's this kind of dry fruit texture inside. And it's apparently very high in vitamin C. It's actually pretty good. But they love berries. They love the baobab. They love honey. They love meat. They eat the whole animal. Nothing is wasted, obviously. And they'll eat some tubers occasionally. When I ate tubers with them, they gave it to me, they spit it out because it's so fibrous and they just basically get the starch out. They don't even swallow mm -hmm. to get the fiber. So when I was with them, they were not eating a high fiber diet, a little bit of fiber, but mostly they were eating meat and organs when they could get it. And the amount of meat they were eating was proportional only to the success of their hunts, yep. which are not always as successful as a full baboon. Sometimes they would just have like a genet cat, which is a small cat, or a dick dick, which is like a small, um, like a small ruminant deer, like a very tiny deer, or a, a, little, a little small monkey. And so you see the same pattern among hunter-gatherer tribes. Another tribe that I have not visited but would like to is called the Khoisan. They live in Namibia, Botswana, um, in South Africa. And they are the subject. Remember that movie? Have you, just, have you ever seen the movie, uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy? Mm -mm. It's a great movie. They throw the, it's the premise of the movie. They actually had a, a Khoisan Bushman um, in the movie. They, the, the premise of the movie, which is fictional, is that they threw a Coke bottle out of a plane flying over the bush in like Namibia and this, this Khoisan Bushman finds it and he's like, what is this? And <laughs> the whole movie is about sort of like how this Coke bottle, this glass Coke bottle changes their tribe. They use it to pound things. And they, anyway, so they, they have this, the hunter-gatherer tribe there. It's kind of similar. Like if you look at their foods, they're eating meat, they're eating organs, they're eating fruit, they're eating honey when they can get it. They might eat some tubers. The Khoisan are unique because they, they do eat nuts at this certain time of year the mongongo nut, mm -hmm. but that's basically what they eat. They just eat these same type of foods. They don't eat salads. They don't eat leaves. They don't eat bitter things. They don't eat roots. The Hadza will eat plant foods that we would consider to be vegetables, leaves, stems, roots, and seeds, but they use them as medicine. Like if you have a mm. stomach ache, they'll take you over to this plant and give you the root Interesting. as a medicine, right? And it's, you know, I saw one guy, the Hadza's chewing on a root, and we're like, what's that for? He's like, oh, it gives you, it gives you boners. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> I, did, I was curious to try that one, but I didn't try it. I left it for them. But they'll, they'll use plants, but they use them as medicine. They're not really the food. The vegetable parts of plants are not really food. It makes sense when you think about it intuitively, right? Like if you're out in the woods or the jungle or the bush with your friends, you're going to see colorful, sweet fruit, and that's what you're going to eat when it's ripe, and you're going to hunt animals. That's going to be the majority of your diet. Well, I mean, the joke I make, uh, so when I go to dinner with my buddies and we're at a steakhouse, and they're like, we know what Mallards is going to order, the ribeye, right? Why don't you eat a salad? And it's like, I tell you what, why don't you not order anything on this menu? You walk outside and take a bite out of the tree. Does that sound like dinner to you, you fucking moron? That's what, that's what you're doing. I don't want to eat a leaf for dinner. Why would I think that providing my body with sufficient nutrients would be going outside before, hold on, Uber driver, give me a second, and just biting a branch and, mmm, nutritious. Now I'm going to be skinny and get chicks. Get the fuck out of here. So I don't know. Oh, sorry, that was aggressive, but I, I just don't know under what level that's intuitive to humans is that, no, I'm going to not eat a strong, uh, like a cow or an ox or something with, nutrients and organs i'm going to eat a plant 
Um, it is difficult though because of all the propagandist nonsense. But um, anyway, I don't I don't understand why that would ever have been intuitive. And no, these tribes don't have Lucky Charms and Snickers bars. Of course they don't. What the hell? Yeah. I don't think it is intuitive. And if you look back a few generations, I mean, it depends on the culture you look at. But you have to go, you know, like vegetables are not a huge part of a lot of traditional diets. And organs are a much bigger part of these diets. But and I find that to be not well known. Because when I think hunter-gatherer, I think in equal proportions hunting and gathering. So, like, the diet is relatively balanced between the two. But right. it seems like that's not the case. It's It's really gathering in times of you know stress or, or not enough food uh you know i hesitate to say famine but you know um but it seems like it's not an equal equal proportions whatsoever no it's hunt 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 honey <laughs> gather a little bit yeah. right and you're gonna gather berries or baobab or something and like yeah if you're starving yeah we have fallback foods the interesting thing about being a human is we do have molars right and we can eat the vegetable parts of plants if we need to have those four fallback foods because free living wild humans do come upon scarcity from time to time and it's a right. good thing it's a good thing you can eat a tuber or you can take a seed and you can grind it and make a flower or you can eat a nut if you need to but generally speaking if you're out in the wilderness and you take a bite out of plants you're going to get sick and die real fast and and these tribes are smart they know which ones they can eat but most plants taste like shit and if you i mean if you think about it People sometimes tell me they just love kale and they don't they don't need to have anything with the kale. They can just eat raw kale and they love the taste. And I think, okay, you've been brainwashed. But okay, fine. Like, but generally If you like to taste the kale, you're fucking lying. <laughs> kind you're of, you're does, a fucking lying. It just lying. doesn't taste good. It's, it's bitter. It's so bitter. It's bitter, right? And like a lot of vegetables can be palatable if you cook them and put butter on them and salt, right? You know, so I was at a restaurant last night and I got a grass-fed. Uh, filet mignon and the woman I was with was you know had got some asparagus and I'm thinking like okay that's a stem of a plant it's not the worst thing in the world but the asparagus tastes reasonably good because they grilled it they put butter on it and they put salt on it if you just eat like raw asparagus it's not nearly as good you could eat it if you were starving right, right, it, right. it wouldn't kill you in the moment it might give you enough calories or some starch to get through the next day but this is you're right this is a really important point you bring up it's not really well known that there's not equal proportions of these things in hunter-gatherer diets. I and mean, it depends on the culture you look at. But if you're looking at true hunter-gatherers who really kind of went away about 15,000 years ago, so any culture post-15,000 years, we're looking at the, what's called the Neolithic Revolution and this idea that pastoralism came in and people started growing plants and they become farmers, which is interesting because at the same time, you can see a clear decline in human health. I mean, more recently, these cultures at the intersection of hunting and gathering to pastoralism have been studied in the Ohio Spoon River Valley, and that's in the United States, like the last 1,000, 1, 1,100 years. And you can see that there's clear anthropology evidence of burial sites of people that were hunter-gatherers and then people that were in the same tribes that were transitioning to pastoralism, agriculture, and the people that were transitioning to pastoralism and agriculture were eating much more like the food pyramid of today would be recommended, right? The people that are hunter-gatherers are eating much more like you wouldn't want to eat today because it's going to raise your cholesterol. But the hunter-gatherers were taller, much less incidence of infectious disease. You can see bone lesions. You can see all sorts of nutrient deficiencies in the skeletons and smaller skeletons mm. of the agricultural peoples. And you see this pattern repeated across the globe every time humans become farmers. They eat, they eat inferior foods, right, because you're now eating survival food as your main food because you can eat a bunch of food. 
you can make as much wheat and corn as you want, so you're always full, or you can make a ton, and then your population expands, but your nutrition goes down massively mm. because you don't have the animal foods as the center of your diet anymore. And some of these cultures do both, but the more of these plant foods they're eating, especially these, these grown plant foods, the less good their health becomes. So let's finish that story. The back end of that is the reverse engineering. We talk about the nutrients. So if you look at what nutrients a human needs to thrive, this is not even controversial. We know this. And these are only the nutrients that we know about. And we're always learning more things in nutrition. Um, he's chewing on a dog treat over there. Are you eating some liver? I'm trying some liver right now. That a boy. Anyway. That's not my favorite type, but there's better ways. We're going to get some raw liver. I think I think my buddy came back with some raw liver. Oh, let's go. I'm training right now. I don't know. I'll we'll see. I yeah. thought I saw him come by. We'll see. Um, so you look at the nutrients that humans need. There, it's We know many of them, right? So you think about the key nutrients. Well, all the vitamins, right? Vitamins A, vitamin B, vitamin, all the B vitamins, which are a bunch of B vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D from the sun, vitamin E, vitamin K2. There's all sorts of vitamins, and there's minerals. And then there's other kind of things that we don't really think of as nutrients unless you're really down in the space, like certain amino acids or peptides, like uh, taurine or anserine or creatine. And, and you look at these nutrients, and you think, okay, where do I get all these things? And the simplest way to get all of them is with animal foods. Yep. And you can even get, not that this is the easiest way to get vitamin C, but that's the one everybody wants to hold up and say, well, animal foods don't have vitamin C. They actually do. So meat contains vitamin C, the spleen, the liver. These are significant sources of vitamin C. I'm not recommending that you only eat animal foods for all of your vitamins. You can get vitamin C from fruit if you want, just fine. But animal foods contain all of those nutrients. Like yeah. every nutrient that we know of for humans to thrive is in animal foods, is in meat and liver. Now you have to eat organs too because you can't just eat muscle meat. Muscle meat doesn't contain any vitamin A, doesn't really have much mm. folate, doesn't have enough riboflavin for humans, doesn't really have a good amount of biotin, right? Doesn't have the full spectrum. Muscle meat's great, has a lot of iron, has a little bit of thymine, has pyridoxine, vitamin B5 which is pantothenic acid, has B12, some vitamin K2 from choline, but the organs are generally richer in a lot of it. They're complementary, which makes sense because you're going to eat them all together, right? But where are the plant foods that contain vitamin K2, that contain creatine, which we know is probably the most studied performance-enhancing substance for humans? And where are the plant foods that contain taurine? Taurine is uh, an amino acid that's gotten a lot of press recently because it's been studied across multiple species and found to promote longevity when supplemented. Where are the plant foods that contain anserine and carnitine and carnosine and 4-hydroxyproline, which is a component of collagen? Those specific four nutrients are all studied and beneficial for longevity. And all of the nutrients I mentioned, vitamin B12, vitamin K2, anserine, taurine, creatine, carnitine, carnosine, the list goes on and on, are only found in animal foods in any significant amount. It's crazy, man. Because uh, So as soon as I listen to your content and, and I start to reverse engineer my diet, I'm like, okay, being the best version of myself, I need these nutrients. And then I started to approach diet that way, which is fascinating for me. I would encourage other people to do it because I walk into Whole Foods. First of all, the coolest thing about humans is the planet Earth is not naturally very inviting and welcoming. Uh, proof of that is that animals go extinct. It's Darwinism. Is It's highly competitive to be on this planet. The reason that Earth is in abundance and pleasant for us is because we've innovated enough and built tools enough. Like the human brain had its biggest growth spurt when we invented the spear and started consuming other animal organs, right? And so the cool thing about me is I was born in 1994, and I don't have to hunt shit. I joke. <laughs> seriously. I don't have to like, oh, shit, I got to eat this tree because I didn't catch a baboon. I don't have to do that. I joke with my dad all the time. He's like, you free for a FaceTime? I'm like, one sec, I'm hunting. I'll be back home in a bit. And that means I'm going to hold 
Whole Foods. And I'm just kidding. Um, but I then walk into Whole Foods and I say, okay, these are the nutrients that I need. How can I do that? And when you go and you grab cauliflower rice and Caesar salad and a cliff bar and I read the back of it, I'm not ticking any boxes of what I need. And then I can either get a slew of fish oil pills and a bunch of bullshit um, or my stomach hurts, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, and then someone's offering me a posh at the bar and they're sucking on these pink cylinders all over the place and it just, so I find it fascinating that that's how I approach diet um, and I, I don't necessarily enjoy eating liver, guys. Like, I don't love the taste yet, but I do it because it's what the human body needs, right? So, like, what can I want the last pitch for you is walking us through exactly, like, uh, the honey, the carbs, because I also had electrolyte deficiency, too, and I solve that with fruit. I, I go running too much um, because then after that, um, I want to show you some data. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So... You're a Bitcoiner. Can you, while I pull this up, um, you say you got orange pilled by Dorsey. You got to <laughs> yes. tell me that yeah. story. Well, uh, I mean, I don't know. I had the good fortune of bumping into Jack Dorsey in my travels, and he knew my stuff, and I was sort of surprised and humbled, and that was exciting, and we became friends, and I ended up hanging out with him a bunch, and the more I hung out with him, you know, the more he was, the more he sort of began to give me an education about economics because I think that I have a lot of understanding and appreciation for I hope the layman because not everybody went to medical school and mm -hmm. not everybody you know I'm not an economist and you know as I began to delve into the realm of money and economics and different types of economics and you know competing theories I thought oh this is super fascinating but it's a whole mm -hmm. you know it's a whole awareness and awakening for me of things that I was never taught. So it's the same. It's very parallel, right? Like I was never taught this stuff, so I had to learn it. Most people are never taught nutrition, so how are they supposed to make decisions? So it's mm -hmm. just, yeah, it was great. I appreciated Jack teaching me about this stuff, and I got super interested, and I thought that makes so much sense. And it's just, yeah, it just it pisses me off every time I hear about inflation and all the bullshit and the, the actual hand-waving that goes on when people are talking about, like, oh, the inflation's not that bad, and the way it's being miscalculated, and they're printing money, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is absolute horseshit. So have, you, have you built a thesis, or do you have a stance on money and inflation and all these concepts and how they overlap with food and your journey at all? You know, I hadn't thought about that till you kind of gave me some hints before this podcast. I think that, I think that like, the, 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 the similarity that I've seen in the past, and I've talked to people about this, is that I, is time preference. So, when I make decisions about food, I'm making a decision for a long time preference, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I want to feel good tomorrow and three weeks from now. I'm not making a decision for a short time preference and thinking I want to feel good now. I want mouthfeel. I want this to taste good. Not that a steak tastes bad or that honey tastes bad, but yeah, I think you could probably, and I could probably give you something that gives you more dopamine in your brain. Mm -hmm. And in the moment you would say tastes better, even though it's kind of tricking you and it's essentially a drug than a steak or a natural food. And there's a lot of, this is very complex, the psychology of food enjoyment, right? Because there's a lot of different layers of how I perceive it. Because if you gave me a cookie, I wouldn't like that because I have so much psychological aversion to that. I know what it does long-term. But to a, a person that isn't thinking about that in quite the way that I am, they're gonna, they're, I think humans generally tend to make decisions 
on a short time preference because that would have served us historically, evolutionarily, when there were no Pandora's box, junk foods, ultra-processed foods available. And it's absolutely damning us to lives of chronic illness today because we're making short time preference. Um, we're making you know cho choices that want us to feel good in the moment mm -hmm. and we're not really aware of how bad they're going to make us feel long term so that was interesting to see the similarity with money you know that like you know you time can, preference yeah time preference totally humans um i would argue that human beings are different because of our abil ability to value the future it's the ability to coordinate amongst each other build the spear knowing that it's going to help us in the long term and then we throw it into an animal and we kill it and then we grab it and we wash it because we're going to use it tomorrow. And it's that idea of tool building and tool building because we're able to value the future, which actually allowed us to create money. But I even think, Scooty, um, can you pull up Lucky Charms over Steak on this one? So this is new government-funded food pyramid says Lucky Charms are healthier than steak. Then, Scooty, can you pull up now MA Food Compass? So this is a study from university and funded by our own government, Paul. So I think I'm about to go through a ton of data and some money stuff. I think I may blow your mind, which <laughs> would be an honor. <laughs> this is, uh, I think it's from... Tufts. Uh, yes, Tufts University. Um, what we're looking at is telling me to eat watermelon and kale... Uh, and then on here is frosted mini wheats. I see honey nut Cheerios. Uh, I see vegetable oil, Lucky Charms, almond M&Ms. And at the very bottom is ground beef, where you claim is the core nucleus of what would be an optimal diet for a human being. And this is coming from a university. So I think, yes, humans value the future. That's what makes us different. We're tool builders. We're able to evolve and coordinate with each other better than a monkey, better than a giraffe, better than a panda. That's true. But I also think that there's something severely wrong for a university to tell me to eat M&Ms before I eat ground beef. So, Scooty, what I'm next going to have you do is pull up what the fuck happened in 1971, this PDF document. And uh, firstly, taking a step back, Paul, um, what money is. Uh, this is fine, Scooty. Um, I'm just going to need you to scroll through it as we, as, as we go. Um, taking a step back real quick as what money is, because I think this is generally misunderstood, Paul. Uh, money is a market good, uh, just like... Uh, airplane is a market good that you use and consume to fly, or a car is a market good that you consume and use to travel, or food is a market good that you literally consume for nutrients. Money is a market good, except it has one catch. You buy and sell money not to consume it. You don't actually consume the money. Um, you buy money to exchange it. That's the one property that money needs to have. And so then, therefore, we can have optimal monies. But that was why money was created in the first place. It actually solved something called the coincidence of wants. So let's say we are a hunter-gatherer tribe. You do the hunting, and I'll build the homes for us. And we'll just call it even. Whatever you bring back, we'll split it. Because without me, we wouldn't be able to sleep. Without you, we wouldn't be able to eat. Call it even. And that is generally okay. That's barter. We're, we're exchanging our trades for a society that scales probably up to 100 people tops. Um, once a society gets bigger than that, you need money to solve this thing called a coincidence of wants. Uh, that means that, let's say you grow blueberries, Paul, and I grow apples. Um, unless you coincidentally want apples all the time and I coincidentally want blueberries, 
we won't actually be able to exchange like we would be if you do the hunting and I do the home building, right? Um, and so how do you actually exchange where if he's a windshield wiper fixer, you make Harton uh, soil supplements, and I'm uh, the CEO of Whole Foods, how do we actually take our contributions to society and exchange them with each other because it's not such a clean trade, like you do the hunting and I build the homes. Does that make sense so far? So you have to develop a technology and a good within the marketplace that you're not actually consuming, that you're buying and selling in the means to exchange for everyone else's contributions to society. Uh, and so money actually is the reason that society can scale as far as it has. Because if not, if I fix windshields for a living, I wouldn't be able to go to Whole Foods and say, hey, I'll take that ribeye, uh, and in exchange for that, I'll fix your windshield. <laughs> I actually fix windshields in exchange for money, and then I take my money, and then I go buy ribeyes, right? So money has allowed us to get to a society in a global market scale of 8 billion people. Without it, humans wouldn't have been able to grow this big. Uh, and so because of that, money has certain properties that are super, super, super important um, in order to perform its job in the market. So its job in the market is not like an Uber driver car to get you from point A to point B, or not like United Airlines to fly you from Chicago to LA, or not like steak to give you nutrients in your body. Its job is to do two things, is to travel across space, so I need to be able to hand the money from me to you, and travel across time, where the value, so if I fix someone's windshield and I get compensated for that, that compensation needs to last through time, right? And I'm, I'm giving you a lot. Does that make sense so yep. far? Yep. And so you've seen iterations of money over time. At one point, maybe bread was money, but bread we both consume and it gets moldy. And so if you get paid in bread next week, the money that... that value you got in exchange for what you got paid in is worth nothing because it molded or because someone ate it. Uh, and then you've seen beads be used as money. Shark teeth used as money. What ended up becoming money for a very long time is gold. Okay, Gold was money because it was so hard and hard in that it's whenever people use hard in money, it's in how hard is it to make more of it? Uh, and you couldn't make more gold because it was constrained by Mother Nature. And so for thousands and thousands of years, to solve this problem of money and the coincidence of wants and that we can all specify in what we want to be good at, and instead of exchanging with each other, we exchange for money, which we then use to buy and sell things that we want, gold became money because it was easy to transport and hand to each other and because you couldn't make any more of it, so it scaled through time. Um, what I have pulled up here is when the U.S. government divorced itself from gold. Can you zoom in a little more, Scooty? First of all, do you have any questions on everything I just walked through? I tried to go as fast as I can. Does that make sense, the role of totally, money in yeah. society? Yeah. Okay. So what you need money to do, if Paul were to grow a bunch of food and sell it to me and get money in return, but that money couldn't travel, so he couldn't actually exchange it with anyone else, or that money was worth zero the next week, then Paul would be pretty pissed and he'd be using a bad money, right? Humans flourished on gold, and then all of a sudden the government uh, divorced us from gold. So here's what we're looking at, Paul. This is what the fuck happened in 1971.com, and in 1971 is when the United States divorced itself from the gold standard. So this is a chart, the first one, growth in productivity and hourly compensation. So human productivity has increased, but our compensation for the productivity that we're giving to society has flatlined since 1971. Keep scrolling, Scooty. I'm going to need a lot of scrolling. This is number of pages in the Federal Register. Keep going, buddy. Pause. Give me, give me a sec, Scooty, to read something. Keep going. Look at this, man. 
Median age of first marriage since 1971. Generally, people would get married in their early 20s. Now, the average age of marriage is 30 years old for a man. Keep going, Scooty. So my, my point that I want to talk to you about is you arrived at a conclusion about food through your medical studies. I arrived at this through money, is that what happens if the thing that we use to exchange our contributions to society, so you mow lawns, this guy fixes windshields, this guy grows bananas, this guy makes heart and soil supplements, what happens if the thing that we get in return for that is fucked up and broken? Everything breaks. This is families with children in poverty. Since 1971, absolutely fucked up. Keep going, Scooty, because there's a few food ones I want to get to child per woman. So our global population rate is trending down aggressively since 1971. Um, and so, Scooty, now can you pull up rise in obesity? So here's the point that I'm trying to make to you, Paul, that I don't know if you have any opinion on. Since 1971, things like child obesity, general obesity, production of vegetable oils has skyrocketed. My thesis is that if you have a money that's hard and that is working for society, then we're going to be effective at pricing things around us uh, and we're going to be able to buy the foods that we want and so society's going to function, simply put. If the money is broken, here's money's broken meaning that it's not hard, that it's easy to make more of the money and it's easy to devalue the money. Where if I'm busting my ass mowing lawns, and what I'm getting in return for mowing lawns is getting less and less and less valuable over time, then I'm able to purchase less and less quality stuff over time. So if the government broke the money, then we're going to start having worse and worse housing and then worse and worse things like food. And it's resulted in our country being really, really obese and really, really unhealthy. And all of these graphs and all of these... Uh, data points prove that since we left the gold standard, our country's been severely unhealthy. Do you, am I making any rhyme or reason? Uh, have you looked into any of this at all? I've seen the same graphs, a lot of the same graphs with regard to the, the health stuff. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I think that one of the reasons that we've become unhealthy is because of subsidies to farmers also who are making shitty foods, farmers that are making corn and soy and grains. So, if the United States subsidized meat, we would be in a very different situation. So there's mm. definitely, I think you're spot on, that there's definitely a financial like driver here. And I would suspect that, I think, you're, I think you're, it's really reasonable to suggest that this is what's going on, that when you're devaluing the currency and you're not having things scale properly as they should regarding productivity and the actual amount of money we're getting paid, like, things get broken and, you know, we're... We basically have an economy now where we have all of these farmers who are making all these grains and we're sort of subsidizing them to make grains. We have to put them in something. We're putting them in cheap processed food. Yeah, it's like, we're, why are we paying people to make things that don't make healthy humans? And then we have to, I think on the back of that, which is where we start to get into the whole circularity of the thing, is if you're making a ton of food and you have to do something with all this corn and this soy and this wheat, you're making a bunch, you have to make it into a bunch of ultra processed food and then you have to have some sort of dietary guidelines or some sort of paradigm with regard to nutrition that supports people at least in some ways eating those foods. Because what we have right now, from my perspective, is this glaring inconsistency where we're being told to eat a bunch of the foods that are horrible for us. There's no way to justify the amount of foods that are on the grocery store shelves that are, that are just causing problems for humans. Like how can the government allow this? Like we eat 
we eat more than 60% of our calories as ultra-processed food as Americans, and yet more than 70% of our population is obese and overweight. How is this even legal? And then why are we subsidizing the same foods that are making us obese? Yeah, there's, got, there's something that isn't adding up here. It's, it's, yeah. completely, it's completely fucked up. And it, it, this gets like conspiratorial, but I believe that the government would prefer me to eat cheaper bullshit foods because it justifies a lot of the inflation. So I guess my my point is that um, if I contribute my energy every single day and in turn for that, I get compensated dollars. And so dollars are a reflection of my contribution to society because that's what I get in return for it. And then the government devalues the dollars by printing more of them. By proxy, they're effectively devaluing me, is my point. And, and that is recognized in the fact that I can't afford grass-fed, grass-finished ribeyes every meal. I have to get Beyond Beef burgers. And actually, the government would be in a lot of trouble if people had to eat high-quality foods that couldn't be highly processed in a factory to keep up with the rate of dollars that are being. You can't print cows, but you can manufacture and print Beyond Beef burgers. And so my tinfoil hat thesis, and I think college is an absolute utter scam <laughs> um and because it's subsidized by the government no one can actually afford it all these 18 year olds get a loan that's subsidized by the government and uh, so i think that it would be preferable for them to say you know what's healthiest for you lucky charms beyond beef burgers and snickers because if they were honest about it everyone would realize that they've made optimal health so unobtainable for the thing that they force us to get in exchange for our labor. I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. I think that there's probably some other stuff going on also that there's big agribusiness companies that can make a profit on ultra-processed foods. Like ultra-processed foods have margin. And so you can make a profit on ultra-processed foods. You can't really make a big profit on beef. Like you said, you can't print beef. You mentioned hardened soils. So hardened soil supplements is a company that I built that makes desiccated organ supplements because it's hard for people to get organs. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to eat the organs fresh. And if they can't do that, I'm proud of what we make, which is the best sort of freeze-dried capsules with organs in them. What you find, what I learned when I built the company, is that you can't print cows. Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't manufacture cows. Like the supply chain of making a company like Hardened Soil, that takes grass-fed, grass-finished organs from cows in New Zealand, and makes them into freeze-dried capsules is fucking tricky, because livers and hearts and spleens and especially testicles, which are really in demand for humans, you can't just make these in a lab. You have to grow them. They have value and they take time. And so that's really interesting that you can scale shit food very easily you yes. cannot scale high quality food you can't scale the best quality agriculture cows not that people have to do grass-fed grass-finished all meat is more valuable than junk food for humans but ideally i think you'd want to do something like grass-fed grass-finished regeneratively raised meat that's that's really hard to scale and we can talk about ways that you could scale it for humans that's sort of the ethical arguments around eating meat versus eating plants but junk food scales and junk food has a margin Foods that are healthy for humans do not. I visited the biggest raw dairy in the world here in California, in Fresno. They have about 1,000 dairy cows. But that's the biggest one in the world, 1,000 cows. That's it. 1,000 dairy cows is the biggest raw farm in the world. It's really hard to scale raw milk. Mm. But raw milk is probably one of the most healing foods for humans 
that I've ever come across. It's mm-hmm. so interesting the way that people react to raw milk versus pasteurized milk. And yet, this is an aside, kind of a soapbox, you know, processed food is legal, cigarettes are legal, alcohol is legal. Yeah, right? isn't it illegal? Isn't raw, raw, milk, milk? raw milk is illegal in Canada. <laughs> it's illegal in Australia. And it's, it's limited, I think, in 37 states. You cannot sell it directly to consumers in a grocery store. And in many states, it's just completely illegal and you have to go on backwater channels in the United States to get it. So in California, you can buy it in a grocery store, but that's a unique thing in California. In mm. Texas, you cannot buy raw milk in a grocery store. You have to get it through a farmer. Many states are even harder. So raw milk is illegal, potentially one of the most healing foods for humans that I've ever seen. Cigarettes, alcohol, processed food, completely illegal and subsidized, not cigarettes and alcohol, but processed food. So there's something fugazi here. Yeah, Scooty, pull up obestyandchildren.jpg. Blow that up for us. So what we're looking at is there's age ranges, 2 to 5, 6 to 11, 12 to 19. And this is measured obesity in the United States. And then since 1971, so sometimes I don't know who I'm talking to. This is our fourth episode. So am I talking to Bitcoiners that know this shit? Am I mansplaining or, or am I talking to people that are generally curious? In 1971, the government allowed themselves to print more dollars, usually a, a Previously, a dollar was redeemable for gold, and you can't print gold. That's why it was a good money. And when they divorced from that, then all of a sudden, every time the government printed dollars, they got less valuable, which devalued all of our lives, all of our contributions to society, and in general, afforded us less. If your money's worth less, then you can buy less. And so you can't get the grass-fed steak. And so all of a sudden, since 1971, all of our children are increasingly obese. Scooty, go to beef cow inventory is crashing. Here's another one I pulled up for you, Paul. All of a sudden, in 1971, beef cow inventory, which you claim to be critical to a flourishing human being, reversed its tracks. It looks like shares are being sold at an alarming rate, right? Isn't that weird? Scooty, what about life purpose decline? This is where I get fascinated by, is it money or is it health that's really a problem? This is... Studies of what people find to be essential are super important of their well-being, their life purpose. So before 1971, it was developing a meaningful philosophy of life and that you could do what mattered to you and that you would get compensated with money for that. And that money would buy you a house and buy you nice food and you would be happy just having purpose. And then all of a sudden, since 1971... Being very well off financially became the most important thing because there's no middle class. You're either really, really rich or you're living week to week. And the joy of finding a purpose in life and something of meaning crashed to near zero. And so there's this bizarre correlation. I encourage everyone to check it out. WTF happened in 1971.com where all of a sudden when the money broke, money is so critical to a functioning society. You think of money as what you get in exchange for your contributions to this world. And so if your contributions to this world are being rapidly devalued and you're getting less housing, you're getting less high quality food, over 50 years you're going to get a society that's 70% obese with depression, anxiety, um, suicide rates up, uh, and society is going to effectively crumble. Uh, And so I have tons of data on this, but I don't know if you've ever seen this stuff. It's really sickening, and it's really sad, and it's the reason I was so excited about this podcast is because I think there's a really natural crossover between our health and our diet and monetary policy, and all of this stuff started when the government started to print dollars. That's freaking crazy, and I wonder about the psychology behind this. As people are uh, 
if you look at that graph, you have to imagine that people are becoming anxious about money mm -hmm. because their money doesn't buy as much as it used to and they don't feel like they have enough yes. money to buy what they need. So people are now going to make different decisions about how they spend their money. And I think that as humans, we're making the wrong decisions based on short time preference, right? Because we're saying, I want something that is cheap <laughs> and that tastes good now because potentially because of this, because I have anxiety around money and I don't have enough money to buy those things. Because I can't tell you how often, even though we, I always do content around how to eat an animal-based diet affordably, less than $15 a day. You could probably do less than $10 a day. People see this and they think, I don't have enough money to, to eat that way. And I think, wow, okay, you, I, I respect these people and I have empathy for them, but I think your paradigm of how you spend your money is very different than mine. Mm -hmm. I'm at a point in my life now where like financially, I don't have money stress, which is fantastic. But even at times in my life when I was a dirtbag ski bum, I spent money on food because I've always, this is just my personal, I've always thought that's what's important to me. That's, that's what I value is I value the food. I'm willing to spend more money on good food. And I've thought, okay, if I didn't have enough money to buy good food, I would get rid of car. I would bike to the grocery store. Like I would, I would give, get rid of many other things. People, you know, I would, not get rid of, I would not, you know, get rid of, I don't even have nice clothes now, but if I had nice clothes, I would get rid sure. of nice clothes, et cetera, et cetera. I, I would just, there were, the food for me is the single most important thing, I think, in terms of that I, that I buy with my money. Yeah. It, it just is because I know that my food affects everything that I do and how I get to live my life. It's just food is the, I don't know, like, how do I say this? Like, food is the, is the medium that allows me to express my purpose in the world. That's, and that may sound like hyperbole, but I don't think it is because I think that the better, and, and I'm talking to you too, Dylan, right now, the better that you eat, the better you show up in the world. <laughs> you know? Like, well, you want to do good in the world, you have to eat good food. There's yeah. just no shortcut there. It's, it's, this, is a, this, is a, this is linear, you know? A to B. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most beautiful intersection between the money and, and diet really lives in, in that concept of time preference that, that you've touched on a few times, which is that money is a, is a, is a hierarchical need uh, you know, akin to water on, on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a baselineness that you need money to be able to reach different levels of uh, and satisfy different levels of, of needs. And so if the money that I acquire for my contributions to society – are being inflated or, you know, read a different way, devalued uh, over, you know, a certain short-term time preference one year from now, right, groceries are going to be more expensive than they are right now, then the decisions that I'm forced to make when, again, my, my baseline need is poisoned by a short-term time preference, to reach those other levels, something like nutritional health, that's, that, the base is poisoned. So the poison scales through, Right which is, you know, I'm going to choose a chocolate chip cookie over a steak because uh, it's cheaper, it's right now, and, I, you know, I can go then use that baseline capital to satisfy some other need. It's kind of, yeah, it's, 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 it's backwards. Yeah, I mean, the, pro the problem is that nobody can save money. Like, if, if saving means that what's under your mattress is constantly being devalued towards zero, then you have an incentive to get rid of it as fast as you possibly can, which right. is what you're meaning is your short-term time preference is if I'm the longer I hold dollars, the more of an idiot I am because they're getting less and less valuable every single day. So I'm incented to get bottle service and to get high sugary, like dopamine hits from eating Snickers. Um, but as we talked about earlier, humans flourish by being able to value the future. And 
fiat currency and an ability for your government to print more of it inherently devalues your ability to value the future. So, Scooty, pull up uh, the divorce rates one I have on here. Um, so you're even seeing these concepts bleed into things like healthy relationships is that if I'm not able to value and plan for my future because the thing I'm getting in return for my hard work is melting towards zero, it's very hard to build a family. So the chart we're looking at now is the rate of divorce in marriage, and it's skyrocketing. Now, like I'm going to a lot of weddings this year. I'm 29 years old. One in every three I go to will... I think it's one in every two. Now it's one in every two. This date is old. Um, so one in every two I go to will, will be divorce. And all of these trends are humans, which fundamentally, when creating the spear, was our ability to coordinate and value the future. Um, we can't value the future with fiat money. So whether you like Bitcoin or not, it's storing your money in something that can't be inflated, which allows you to value the future. And it's actually how I got in, how I found you, and how I got into this diet is because I realized, holy shit, what bad habits have I built within myself given that I haven't been allowed to value my future? I was born in 94, way after 71. And given all, I, all I've done since I've been alive has had an inability to value my future, what very poor decisions have I made for myself? And one of those for me was diet. I have all trauma disorders and all these uh, anxiety issues and terrible, terrible um, inflammatory issues. And uh, since adopting your work, man, um, I've been solved. I adopt Bitcoin, I, I stack Bitcoin, and I eat ribeyes. And I've never felt better. And it's it, so cool. It's crazy, man. It's so cool. I just, I don't know. Like, I think that it's so interesting. And that's why the value of these podcasts is so great, just to, Help people understand that, like, look, whatever you're suffering from, it's changeable, you know. Yep. And and this is the beauty of Bitcoin too. Like, there is this despair around the the evaporation of your of your wealth of your wealth, and that's fixable too. Totally, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have any comments. We, we grew up together on our generation. I get fired up about uh, you made that. That reminds me of a comment you made earlier about how people don't take enough ownership over their own uh what it, what what did you say we we're talking about um what was it earlier uh we were talking about was it what university said where um oh no that um that uh obesity is is genetics right 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 obesity is genetics um Sorry, brain fart there. You said obesity was genetics, and so that <laughs> the fact that you're overweight is out of your control. Sorry, it's in my blood. That's the most asinine, and I don't mean to shit on my generation too much, and I love, I love my friends and I love my peers, but I'm telling you for the sake of hopefully motivating people, going out to uh, bars in my generation, you, and people are like, yeah, you know, um, my stomach hurts, um, and I ate this salad, and you know it's not fair that I can't get a home in this market, and I'm waiting for Biden to fix it. And they're smoking <laughs> these, yeah, no, seriously, and they're smoking these poshes, and they're eating like shit, um, and they're drinking a lot, and it's not fair. The government's got to make. I'm, I'm like, guys, I like, sorry, I did, I didn't know Biden like can't ride a bike or whatever you want that guy to fix your diet in your house like come on it's like a little self-ownership like the reason that you don't feel good is not because of your genes and the reason that you aren't able to save money is not biden's fault like call me crazy here's an idea how about don't be a bitch like that's <laughs> my that's my motto it's like come on and i like 
I don't know where I'm going with this point, but I think ah, it, just, it just really motivates me when I go down these rabbit holes and I look at this data and I piece things together and I just want to grab my generation um, by the shirt and like, guys, we got this. But human progress starts with self-ownership and self-responsibility and it's not your genetics and it's not your president's fault. You got to figure this stuff out on your own because your your university that you got $200,000 into debt is going to tell you to eat Lucky Charms. And there's nothing we could do about that. We got to fix it ourselves, man. I feel like it's <laughs> I feel like it's programming, though. It's programming. So it's a little bit tough to deprogram people, right? I think we're programmed into despair. It's, it's almost learned helplessness in some ways. So, like, we're programmed to believe that we can't fix our medical stuff. You listen to CNN, you listen to, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's brainwashing, right? So it's, it's like, how do you deprogram people? How do you wake people up? How do, you, how do you incept people? How do you change the way that they think about things? I don't think that it's necessarily people who are not, uh, they're not motivated enough. I just think that we're all, we're asleep because we've been lulled to sleep with programming. You've been programmed to believe that meat is bad for you because everything you see on the news says meat is bad for you and meat is bad for the planet. And that's, that's what they're feeding you. So it's just, I think it's just where you get your information from. I mean, don't trust, verify, yeah. right? Like, like this, there you go. it goes this, it's yeah. full circle here. Like it's just people, I don't think that we're examining so many of the beliefs that are foundational in our lives are unexamined. Beliefs about nutrition, and maybe people don't believe they have enough time to examine the nutritional beliefs beliefs about our place in the world, they're unexamined beliefs. And if you're basing your life and you're basing your decisions on unexamined beliefs that are potentially false, you're in a world of fucking hurt. So, yeah, the last uh, topic, because I'm really curious, is what do you think we do about that? How do we change the what you're calling programmed populace? Because uh, whether I'm onto something with money or you're onto something or we're both onto something, what do you think we do about it? I think it's very similar to the Bitcoin path here. My impression is that the mainstream media and social media outlets are never going to get behind this message of yep. nutrition. They're, they're captured and they are, they are not going to get behind this. And so what happens is over time, enough people in a quote unquote grassroots way discover this, experiment with it just like you and cannot now be swayed. You are awoke. You, yeah. are, you are awakened, my friend. You know, you are, you're quote unquote safe. Like you've had this experience and your experience is so valid. If someone came to you and said, I have a stack of a hundred papers here that show a vegan diet is better. You need to go back to eating a vegan diet. You would say, hey, I feel this. Mm -hmm. Your stack of hundred papers is data on a page. It's words on a page. It's ink on a page. This is my lived human experience. So the key is giving people a catalyst. And this is, one of my goals in my work, giving people a catalyst or just the permission to say, go eat a freaking grass-fed hamburger. You don't have to eat it with a bun. Go eat a burger. Go eat some liver. Don't fear meat. Get rid of a salad for a few days. Definitely get rid of seed oils and see how you feel. And almost invariably, people feel better and that is the beginning of the magic because they understand, holy shit, okay, this is possible. It's possible for me to avoid and get free from depression, anxiety, obesity, GI issues, gas bloating, constipation, autoimmune issues that are imp impairing my life in every way. Once they've experienced that, they tell someone else. So it's just this like, it has to foment, right? It has to come from people who experience it and it's happening because I think once ideas are out there, they're viral, right? But you, what do you know about a viral replication? It takes time in the beginning and it becomes logarithmic, right? But in the beginning, it's still not to yeah. this like compounding logarithmic phase. And it's just, I think that 
what we know is that there are far more ex-vegans and vegetarians than there are current vegans and vegetarians. And that the majority of people who return to eating meat do so because they have health issues from avoiding it. So the truth is out there. And to, to be fair, I'll frame that statement with the fact that I really appreciate vegan and vegetarians because they're making an intentional dietary mm -hmm. choice. And I think that most, I think that I'll say tongue in cheek, I've said this before, veganism is the first step to being animal-based or carnivore because you realize you've made an intentional decision. You're actually saying, I'm not going to eat that. Well, great, that's the first step. Pretty soon, a lot of those people are going to realize, hey, I don't feel as good as I want to feel. My health is getting worse. Meat is there for you, and I want to provide them the information in the most digestible way possible to say, actually, that meat is not bad for me, or it's not. It, there's ways to eat meat ethically that allow me to feel like I'm making the right decision as a human on a planet, in an ecosystem, in a community. And then people can have a path to something that they believe in, and then they'll feel the difference. I mean, the, the testimonials are consistent. People go from being a vegan to eating meat, especially organs, and it's just like something lights up, right? Totally. Their whole life changes again. So <clears throat> I think that the truth won't be denied once people have these experiences. They just won't be able to not tell their friends about it. And I think that as humans, we are programmed, just like with money. We're programmed to believe, no, the US dollar is what I need. It's actually something that's green, and it's what I use. But it's, it takes time, and people see the truth in it, and they experience it, and then it happens gradually. And I think that over the next five to 10 years, much like maybe yeah. the time horizon, a lot of people think Bitcoin may finally become more accepted or um, you know, become a bigger part of our commerce mm -hmm. or have more market cap. Um, I think people will begin to see this. And it's cool because I get to be alive for that time. But you know, it starts really slow in the beginning and it's picking up steam now. But stories like yours are the stories that affect people. And totally. they, they can't be, you can't invalidate that. No, and I, and <coughs> I, I now relate much more to your work and I respect it so much because you're right. I am going through this. You as my witness, how often do I talk about you don't shut the fuck up about <laughs> it. That's, that's the problem, though, is I have this this thing where it's like, how much do I care about the person versus care about the relationship with the person? Because I have a feeling I'm on to potentially what would help them. And there's everyone is so resistant to it. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about Bitcoin, which is so amazing, is that if I had to convince the government, like, stop printing the dollars, it sucks, like, please don't do this, and try convince everyone around me about it. The cool thing about Bitcoin is it's an alternate system, and I actually could just say, like, say la vie, motherfuckers, you guys are going to hold something that's getting worse, I'm going to hold something that appreciates, everything around you and your life is going to get more expensive, everything around me and my life is going to get cheaper, and I don't have to do any convincing, but for in the, in the uh, diet, you know, the people I love and I care about, they're so resistant to it still, and um, and I get so much shit for how much I want to talk about it, um, but it has changed my life, man, and I got so much respect uh, for for what you do, and um, I'm cheering you on. I'm surprised you get shit about it. It's kind of like show them, don't tell them. People don't want to hear, they don't want to be proselytized, you know, but I think show them, like, how can they not see it in you? In the way well, that you look and your vitality. I want to ask. Yeah, no, ignore I, it. I, I was going to say. This is my I, best friend in yeah. the whole wide world. Yep. We do everything together at this point because we run this company together. And 
it's been how long now? And I've been on him so hard. He's like, man, I'm having trouble sleeping or I'm not feeling well or my stomach hurts. I'm like, dude, please, like one month in your life. If you don't like it, one month, 30 days, and he won't fucking do it. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you you mentioned a point, which is you actually respect vegans because, and, I, and I've heard you uh, allude to this in different forms and functions, um, that you appreciate at least someone attempting some form of a diet. Uh, I represent the population, and I'll put them on my back because there's more of them than just me, of people that you wouldn't appreciate. I have no diet. I eat what I want. I eat what makes me happy. I eat a Crunchwrap Supreme if I like. On Sundays, I tend to enjoy a dry-aged grass-fed steak and mushrooms with, with you know my girlfriend in our apartment. Um, I have no diet. What's, what's your pitch to someone like me to, to, to change my mind? Because to put it bluntly, I eat to satisfy myself. I don't really necessarily care, and I think, you know, genetics are a component of it that might change my mind, but I can eat what I, if I eat half a pizza, I lose half a pound. I just don't retain weight at all. Um, and so what's your pitch to someone like me? There's no pitch. I've already infected you with a virus because you've seen, <laughs> you've seen the content, right? Of course. You know it's out there. I do. So, so I'm, not, I'm not woke to the extent that you both are. I'm Don't, not use necessar- Don't use that well, word. Don't use that word. Well, I'm not oh, necessarily wait. asleep <laughs> either. <laughs> I hate the fucking word. That's such a captured word. You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah okay. I know what you Yeah. 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 So in the nutritional sense. The seed is in there, bro. Like, you've seen my content. When you're ready for it, it will sprout. Like, when, and this is going to sound bad, but take it in the best way. When you have a health issue, you're going to know where to go. Mm. I can't convince you of anything, but it's there for you whenever you need it. Mm. When, when you or someone you love has a health issue, you're going to think maybe this would help them and then you're ready for it. You're not ready, but it's there. It's in you because it's the vi- I've got the virus in you already, bro. <laughs> That's the point of social media. Like I've infected yeah. you and if you never need it, great, but so you or somebody you love is going to have an issue and then it's going to happen. But I so let me just intervene here because what's a health issue? This is where it, what fascinates me is it isn't just about like oh um, my tummy hurts or I'm getting headaches or I'm I'm gaining weight. Like health is sleep, skin, uh, anxiety, depression. Like I don't think that people, the population generally understands the correlation between diet. Because I don't want to get too personal with you, but we're stressed out. We we do stuff yeah, yeah. that's hard. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it depends on the definition of health issue. You've either had health issues that I think this diet would help with, or no, you're you're 29 and you walk straight and I don't know, I think you're going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like what's a health issue? It's relative. It's relative. It's what means something to him. Mm, yeah. You know, because Be- through this, I developed psoriasis on, on my scalp. Okay. There you go. Um, it, would, it would fix that. I yeah. think it might. I have good hair though. <laughs> you can't really see. You it. can't see it. So it doesn't mean <laughs> enough to you right now. Yeah, exactly. So, but there will be something that means enough to you and mm. it's going to be you or your girlfriend or your kids or some, are you somebody you love, you know, it's going to yeah. happen. It's, I mean, this sounds bad, but it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's inevitable. Right? It's inevitable. You're yeah. 29. It's going to happen, and it's there for you. You know, it's just like, I don't know. I've just got like this like CIA programming in you already. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. all that has to happen is the magic word has to get spoken, and you're like, okay, let's go. But that's, that's the way it is for people. It's like I'm not going to nobody, – nobody can pressure you to do these things. This is human behavior. Don't, don't tell me what to do. My goal is never to convince anyone to do it. It's just to say, hey, when you're ready, if you want this tool, here's the tool. Yeah. And I put it out there for you. Like, I want people to have the blueprints that say, oh, yeah, how do I do that? Okay, animal-based diet. Like, okay, Jack, how do, I, how do I eat that way, right? Like, how would I do it if I wanted to do it? It's there for you. You know that it exists. That's the most important thing. When you're ready, it's there for you. And, yeah, it's, it's all relative. And I think that the key 
you bring up such a good point is that most people by the age of 29 have had a health issue that would benefit from doing this. But again, it, I think it's just relative. They, if, if they don't think, if that health issue hasn't made an impact on their life, the value proposition isn't there. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I have had my issues, but my issues were such subtle. Like, I haven't had psoriasis or anything like that. It was insomnia and it was anxiety uh, and a lot of those type of issues that I actually got into it through these charts, through Bitcoin, where I realized, like, holy shit, um, the diet that we were eating 150 years ago is not the one we're eating today. And it's probably because our money's been inflating since World War One, and I was like, "Wait, I want to try the diet as if my money's not inflating, as if I could value my future." Um, and that's actually how I got into it. But now that I realize the benefits far exceed just like having good skin, and and I, I've added a ton of muscle. I don't do anything. I just do push-ups. That's all I have time for. It's crazy. Anyway, but um, but you knew about it. I knew about it because of you, man. Well, that's cool, man. I'm I'm glad it was helpful. So that's the goal: is just you get it out there. People know about it, and then they eventually might try. Yeah, that's and it, the key. It's been one of the best education vehicles for me, and because you don't you don't like Bitcoin to honestly similar. I'm realizing the similarities. Bitcoin's there for when you need it. I have a similar approach actually, mm -hmm. um, and but uh, it's less. This story for me is less about you need to buy Bitcoin, and it's more about. This is what destructive money does to society is after 50 years, they're incredibly sick and they can't afford housing and homes and they value becoming rich as fast as possible instead of finding a purpose and they get divorced and the global population goes down and all of the things that you would care about in a community and in society and in family and in friends is fucked up. And uh, our diet and our health has been the best way for me to explain that. So do we have the liver? Did he, did Niall come back? Let's look. I don't know. <laughs> That's uh, Pavel Sassoline on Joe Rogan said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chicken is, uh, I think this is the chicken going up is just because of the programming, right? We're programmed to believe that, um, that, that red meat is not good for us. And so chicken is thought to be a good, an alternative meat in, when in fact, you know, if you really look at the data, there's no evidence that saturated fat is harmful for humans and it's probably even right. better than most other fats. I think chicken is inferior to beef in a lot of ways. That's just psychology, Look right? at that, man. 1971. That's psychology, the right? The chicken is just exploding. Yeah. yeah. It's psychology because beef is being vilified. But chicken, so this is interesting. We could talk about this. I, hopefully, we're still recording it. We could put it in the yeah, podcast studio, if you want or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, so chicken and pork or, or pigs are monogastric animals. So this gets into the seed oil piece. It's really interesting that beef is a ruminant. And um, ruminants have different biochemistry than humans, chicken, and, and pigs. We can convert polyunsaturated fatty acids into monounsaturated or saturated fatty acids. Excuse me, ruminants can do that. We cannot. So when we eat polyunsaturated fatty acids, we store them. Probably because historically, evolutionarily, we didn't have a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids in our diet, and we just stored them. We never needed to like convert them. But herbivorous animals that have a lot of polyunsaturated fats in their diet developed an ability to convert them into saturated and monounsaturated fats, probably because excess polyunsaturated fats cause havoc biochemically at cell membrane level in the cell, in the mitochondria, in the nuclear membrane. So we were talking about this before the podcast. Chicken consumption going up is problematic in a number of ways. I think the reason chicken consumption is going up is because we're being sort of, mm -hmm. we're being, you know, like convinced the beef is bad for us wrongly. But chicken fat contains 
polyunsaturated fatty acids in proportion to the amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the chicken's diet. So hold that thought, and then we'll talk about seed oils for a moment. Seed oils are corn, canola, sunflower, safflower, soybean, etc. I don't want to pause you. Uh, Scooty, bring up the um, vegetable oil production, and then keep going, Paul. You're, this is gonna blow your mind as well. Look at that. Yeah, it's cra- man. it's crazy, man. What it's crazy. The fuck? Since 1909, so in 1909 there were no seed oils, and then uh, Procter and Gamble made. I think Procter and Gamble made Crisco, which is hydrogenated soybean oil or something. And so they were, and they've just gone up since then. And so there's, you can see that the inflection point in that curve is right around the 1970s as well. But they were going up even in the 1950s. And, and the same, you can see the same sort of track for all chronic diseases. It's just an association. It's not causative, but it's a, it's a compelling association. Remember that in 1900, 1850, that time frame, almost all of our fat was from animals. Mm-hmm. So all the fat we were eating was butter and tallow and lard, probably lard from pigs that were not fed corn and soy like they are today. So seed oils, corn and canola, sunflower, safflower, soybean, I think these are a major problem for humans. And you can look at the biochemistry. You can look at the data. They, it's confusing unless you kind of read between the lines. But there's there's studies suggesting that there's an association between seed oil consumption and increased cardiovascular disease. If you look at the actual seed oil consumption, mm. seed oil amounts in the, the, the correlate for seed oil amounts, which is linoleic acid in the fatty tissue of humans, which is really the only good marker of seed oil consumption. Seed oil consumption correlates with increased rates of macular degeneration across multiple studies, which is a degenerative condition in the back of people's eyes. Uh, it can, correlates with lower levels of testosterone, correlates with less intelligence and motor skills in infants and mothers who are eating more seed oils. We can see that in the amount of linoleic acid in their breast milk. So there's lots of solid, compelling evidence. These are very harmful for humans. And yet they're the main oil in our food supply now because people think that saturated fats, tallow, butter, ghee, that these are bad for us. I think that they... Are they cheaper though? They are. They're much cheaper. They're much cheaper and they preserve the foods as well. Mm. So you can't... You know, natural fats will spoil in a different way. You know, the seed oils... They're just they're they're problematic because they're bleached and deodorized and people don't taste that they're becoming rancid even though they're becoming more rancid quickly. Mm. I yeah I, I think the did the money break first or did we get programmed first? Like this is I may get blasted on the internet. This is just what I truly believe. Um, technology is deflationary, like meaning that as technology gets better, the things in our lives get cheaper. Like going to a movie, yep. seeing a hundred movies used to be really expensive when I had to go to the theater. Now I have a Netflix subscription. It's what, seven bucks a month. So technology makes pricing go down, more efficient, except for weird things like university tuition. How the fuck does learning math from someone at Harvard not get cheaper? I have a, I have a computer in my pocket. Why can't you accept more students per semester? Why haven't prices gone down? And my thesis is they, one, result to artificial scarcity um, through, uh, um, uh, like... It's admissions like a, rates or... Yeah, it, admission rates. It's, it's like a country club. Um, it, is they, they artificially suppress how many people they could teach at once, which is garbage. You're saying people like Mr. Beast can put up hundreds of millions of YouTube views, but you guys can't stream how to learn mathematics and calculus. That's bullshit. But the other, in my (laughs) opinion, is government subsidies. Is that the reality is the dollar's gotten less and less valuable, but the price of tuition has remained the same, which means that more and more people will increasingly not be able to afford to go to college. 
unless the government subsidizes it, unless the government says you all can go to college uh, from a loan from us. And then in return, um, as long as university is going to effectively run on subsidies from the government, then the government may be able to influence uh, what they tell you is healthy. That's my conspiracy. You guys say what what you want about it, but all of a sudden is the fact that without government subsidies, uh, universities wouldn't be able to function in, in the manner in which they do. Uh, oh, and then, by the way, eat Lucky Charms instead of steak. Well, look, at th- so this is, I don't want to say anything that's going to get you guys off of YouTube, but look at the way research is funded, right? Do it, by the way. <laughs> we yeah, can yeah, put yeah, it on Twitter. <laughs> we don't care. I mean, look at COVID, right? I mean, there's just, there was, there's a lot of awareness now that if you're not saying the right things during COVID, you're losing your funding. If you're not doing the right things in your research, if you're not researching things that go along with the norms, you're not going to get funded. And like, how hard would it be in 2023 to get funding for a study looking at the idea that meat is good for humans, right? It's much easier to get, or like, how do you go against the pharmaceutical things? So like, it's just crazy to think that I mean, there was all this gain of function stuff with COVID and like, hey, if you want money from the NIH for this kind of thing from Fauci, you have to get in line. You have to say what we're, you know, you have to say what you're supposed to say or you're going to lose your funding. So there's there is it's just like everybody. And, and of course, money is becoming less valued. So less valuable. So you're going to need more of it. Like there's a whole industry of people in the academic institutions who happen to teach our children and inculcate our young who are captured. And so universities are requiring COVID vaccinations or... Right, there's no money to be made in it. If I could cure anxiety through beef instead of uh, alprazolam or or some benzodiazepine, there's no money to be made in that if I'm a pharmacist. I would never sponsor that study if I owned Pfizer. Yes, that's true, but I actually think of it less from like a capitalistic... like. Um, there are these corporations that profit more. That's also probably true, like the pharmaceuticals. But I, it's you have to find a way to justify the need to print more dollars. Um, that's that's the reality of the situation. Is above, like capitalism, and is the government. The only way the dollar gets adoption as a money is by force. If I don't use the dollar, if I say, "Huh, the properties of this thing aren't great." I get it in exchange for my contributions to society, and then it just grinds its way towards zero, and I grow up in a tiny little apartment, and I eat industrial sludge, and I get sick and depressed. I actually don't want to use that thing. I go to jail. So they, they, they force me to use this fucking thing, and then they have to give propagandists, in my opinion. Call me what you want, but in my opinion, it's just justifying the need to print more and more and more of of this it's less about like well if you know people like lucky charms more than steak then like my business may has better q4 returns we're we're, i'm a little bit aligned we're slightly off in that i believe the forcing function is actually just debt is just issuing debt um but yeah well again parallels with food you'll go to jail in canada for raw milk you know (laughs) if you don't want to eat the right foods in canada you'll go to jail raw milk do who got pissed? So they, this, they made someone upset. No, the story of raw milk is that humans have been drinking raw milk for probably ten to 15,000 years and that raw milk has always been pretty safe. Um, it's never perfect when you're in the wild to collect milk out of an udder, but milk tends to have lots of things in it that protect the milk from overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria. Over 700, culture, over 700 species of bacteria are in raw milk, whether from a human breast or from a cow's udder or a 
or a goat or a buffalo or a yak or whatever you want to, whatever mammal you want to get your milk from, they all have lots of bacteria in them, which is commensal and seems to be beneficial for humans. In the early 1900s, right about the same time that seed oils show up, you have this industrialization of food as humans move into cities, and you have raw milk from that was usually on farms in small production. People want to drink milk in cities, and so what do they do? They bring cows into cities, and they're milking them in... Times Square. In, in, well, essentially, yeah, in really substandard conditions. They're feeding them the spent oh, grains of alcohol, which is called swill, historically, and you get problems with contamination of raw milk because they're they're making raw milk in subsanitary conditions. Really, the cows are unhealthy, pooping on the floor. It's contaminating the milk. So you have unhealthy cows producing unhealthy milk in substandard conditions, and people get sick. Pasteurization comes along, saves the day, and then you lose a lot of the benefits of raw milk when you pasteurize it, which is heating it anywhere above, I would say, 103 degrees. Technically, a lot of the benefits of milk are probably lost around 146 when you get conformational changes in the whey protein. But yeah, so we have this historical thing that's been kind of continued, and now we have at scale, like raw milk is difficult to do at scale. How what does is pasteurization? Pasteurization is heating of milk. So it's the heating of milk, and it kills all of the things in milk. It kills the good stuff, it kills the bad stuff. Right. And generally speaking, like I said, raw milk, when produced reasonably well, has enough stuff in it to protect it from overgrowth of the bad things. Those 700 commensal bacteria prevent the overgrowth of the bad things. I saw the statistic the other day. There's been 73 plus deaths from pasteurized milk and zero deaths from raw milk. And if you look at the actual contamination of raw milk, it's very, very rare, but it does happen and people get up in arms about it. But people don't stop eating spinach, but every year there are hundreds, e. if not thousands yeah. of cases of contamination of vegetables and spinach and leaves in grocery stores. But people only get excited about the animal-based ones, right? So the meats or the, the milks, but vegetables are contaminated. I mean, our food gets contaminated. That's how it happens as humans. This reminds me, Scooty, can you bring up U.S. food versus U.K. food? This reminds me of a, a question I have for you, too. Dude, I literally prepared so many materials. I'm so into this. So... Um, have you ever heard of people, and I've experienced this myself, where you travel to Europe and you're like, oh, I feel better. Like, the food's higher quality. You're like, why? U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. Like, why is that? And then this is an example. What we're looking at is the ingredients in something as simple as, like, oats at the grocery store. And this is common, is that there's so much bullshit in U.S. food and not in U.K., Europe, or really anywhere else in the world. Is that true? And do you have a thesis on that? This is crazy. So look at the U.S. version, and you have seed oils, you have <clears throat> you have Red 40, which is known to be problematic for humans. You have fake forms of vitamins, and the U.K. version is just not all things that I'm super excited about. But oats, I have a, a massive issue with oats. It's been an interesting thing yeah, to talk I, about recently. I love that. But yeah. it's just oats, sugar and then freeze-dried fruit, and they have a little bit of natural flavoring. Who knows what that is? But they don't have seed oils. They don't have red dyes and all this other kind of garbage. So this, is, this to me is just, this is, I think, the food system at work. This is mm. big food, agribusiness at work, doing something to make the food more addictive or palatable to humans. I mean, you can't have the same... If you, if you had good quality fruit, you wouldn't need the red 40, right? They have artificial strawberry flavor, right? Dehydrated apple pieces treated with sodium sulfite, artificial flavor. So you have lower quality ingredients, higher margin, all of this shit in the U.S. stuff. Who seed produces oils. that shit? What shit? The red 40 and all the ingredients. Uh, on DuPont, a, on these a are list DuPont I, and chemical companies. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's gnarly stuff, and it's in a lot of things. This <laughs> is fucking... This looks like someone's trying to kill me, right? <laughs> 
No, I'm being dead serious. It Sco- looks like someone is trying to keep you as a customer, I think, in some way. Yeah, like, but yeah. then I get fat, and then I can't sleep, and then I'm depressed, and then I get divorced, and then I can't afford a house. <laughs> and th- No, that's what my popula- my generation's going through. And then you eat more of these foods to calm yourself, to like assuage, right? Scooty, yeah, then I'm hungover on a Sunday. Yeah. How many kids my age are going to relate? I'm, I'm hungover on a Sunday, and I, I'm going to sit with my vape and order Uber Eats and eat more of this garbage. Yeah. Scooty, pull up U.S. health decline. Because it's like, oh, are they trying to kill me, though? Because I pulled, I've got the sweetest stepmom in the whole world. She's the most beautiful woman. She's changed my life. I love her to death. I showed her this as I was preparing for this podcast. I was like, Cookie, look at this. And she goes, Jack, you can't get up there and be too ignorant. You got to keep COVID in mind. I go, Cookie, COVID wasn't a U.S. thing. <laughs> what the fuck? How did everyone else deal with COVID? It, we have a problem in this country where they're putting this garbage in our food, and the dollar's getting devalued, and everyone's worried so much about what they can afford, and they're depressed, and they're sick. Like, what the fuck? Well, do you think that, that decline in the last year is the vaccine and all of this, this unaccounted for death with the vaccine? But that's, that's happening all over the world. You know, so that's interesting. Also, that this is. But you can see crazy. that you can see that every the average of eleven countries also takes a hit in the last year. So every country has a decline uh, of some sort of a bump. Some of them have a small recovery, but there is a decline across. But the United States has been way worse. Yeah, I wanted to get your opinion on this one too because it. W- and this is me. I'm a novice, right? Like I'm getting into the animal based stuff, but I don't know. I'm an expert in Bitcoin, not any of this stuff. When I see this, I see people maybe their bodies were maybe a little bit healthier to deal with illness where us is eating red 40 whatever the fuck on uber eats and just getting we're getting slaughtered out here our bodies are just sick (laughs) well we know we know that during covid we were we were kind of like sitting ducks right it was just like we were at a position where we were massively unhealthy full of seed oils all of the membranes in our cells because we were talking before the podcast about how humans store the seed oils we store polyunsaturated fats we were just kind of sitting ducks, and then this, it's like we were essentially on the plains, on the grassland, and we become a bunch of slow animals, and this massive predator came through and just like really took, took out the, the most susceptible people in, in, the, in, the, in the herd. And so we were just, we were susceptible, and we just, we got, we got hammered it, but it, with I a mean, bioweapon. Th- this graphic looks like we're unhealthier than everyone else, and that, that, previous one as well it yeah. just terrifies and me. and i think man. that 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 the illustration you had with the oats is a really good is a really good corroboration of this that our our food supply is probably more ultra processed than i know countries. and that's why when we're talking about like dylan who like is my number one human in the world i do everything with and it's like yeah when you're ready you'll start eating meat but this type of shit is what gets me fired up is when people are like when i'm ready i'll buy bitcoin and i'll eat meat but for now i'm gonna store my savings in dollars and i'm gonna (laughs) eat those oats and it's like how much do you love the person versus respect the relationship you know i'm like shake them like come on like i feel like uh, i i really want to lead my generation and give some more transparency is what one of the reasons i'm doing this podcast but fuck man anyway i'm glad we sat back down there's a lot of nostalgia in the crunch rap supreme i'll tell you (laughs) Oh, a lot man. of nostalgia. Who lot. cares? Uh, <laughs> I think that the, uh, I mean, the clear passion for wanting to protect your friends is, is obvious, and it's just it's human psychology is interesting. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah. It's complicated, and it's just yeah. But it's, it'll happen. The seeds been planted. He's I infected. Agree. He's I infected. Agree. We don't have to do this for the pod, 
like genuinely. I'm just like curious. What is your what's your take on mushrooms? Uh, you know, I've so, always found them to be fascinating. And I, college, I was pre med, didn't work out for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, you I know, there's there's plants, animals. I think uh, pr- protists, and then fungi. Yeah. So they're always this fascinating sort of tertiary organism. No, clearly valuable for humans, especially in 2023 in terms of state change, in terms of turning off the default mode network in the brain and getting people out of their heads and getting them to see the world in a different way. And I think that it's great that they're being studied more widely now. I think it's fantastic. I think they're now being abused and they're being overused and they're turning into a party drug. And, you know, people are going from alcohol to mushrooms, fine. I I think that they probably... like anything, there's probably a cost associated with this, and we don't fully understand what the cost of long-term chronic low-level psilocybin is on the brain, and I'm not convinced that it's benign. I think that in the short-term, PTSD, anxiety, changing state, changing the way you see the world, fantastic. Use wisely. Powerful medicine, right? And then what about from a nutritional standpoint? I want to sear up some lion's mane. This is so. This now we're talking fungi. Yeah. yeah. yeah, So now we're talking edible fungi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So my intuition is that if we looked, we would find compounds in edible mushrooms that are not great for humans. Mm. We tend to assume, out of just the current, that that these superfoods are always good for us, and then we inevitably find that hey, they're not that great, right? Resveratrol from wine it decreases androgens in men. Turmeric does the same thing. So curcumin, anti-inflammatory, like a couple of studies with osteoarthritis show, okay, sure, this compound in turmeric has a pharmaceutical effect in humans, of course. But what are the other side effects of these plant compounds? And that's what I think people always, our bias, our tendencies to have a blind eye to the side effects of these plant compounds in humans. That's what we must be careful of that. Because when I look at this, when I have a bias, like I bet there's something bad about this on the back end, resveratrol, curcumin, whatever plant compound you want to find, isothiocyanates, right? Uh, Sulforaphane and broccoli. You can find evidence that these are harmful for humans while they're doing something good. And I would argue that you can fix the inflammation in your body without turmeric. You don't need turmeric to fix inflammation. Just get rid of the foods that are causing the inflammation and you won't need that for your osteoarthritis. In fact, I've been doing a bunch of content on joint stuff recently because Hardened Soil is coming out with a a joint supplement called Joint Repair, which is tracheal and scapular cartilage and bone marrow. And you look at the nutrients in certain animal foods, they support healthy joints. So that's really cool. So I've been thinking a lot about joints. So there's ways to fix your osteoarthritis without turmeric, right? And then, you know, there's ways to improve the way, the rate at which you age without compounds that are going to have potentially bad side effects. There's ways to improve your antioxidant status, which is the argument for sulforaphane and broccoli, without doing something that's going to inhibit iodine as the absorption at the level of the thyroid and potentially cause thyroid issues in humans. And it's a plant compound. It's meant to be a defense chemical. Yep. So I think, you know, people will say, oh, there's this compound in lion's mane that's been studied and does this. And I say, okay, what else does it do that's bad? Because lion's mane, any fungi doesn't want to be eaten either. Sometimes people will say, oh, the above ground parts of mushrooms, it's the fruit. No, it's the fruiting body. It's different, not actually a fruit. It doesn't want to be eaten. And so I think that like other... Other organisms have an intelligence that we discount. Plants have an intelligence. Fungi clearly have an intelligence. And I think that I'm not convinced that there are not more compounds in fungi that we are ignoring. Fungi mm. are very in vogue right now. We know that that a garotene in the um, in the like the uh, the uh, like the portobello and white button mushrooms and carminis those are all the same species. Yep. Bisporus agaricus, I think. So. 
that that compound looks to be quite harmful for humans. It's at least partially denatured when you cook it. But there's this really fascinating clip of Paul Stamets on Rogan. Have you seen this one? This would be great to put in the podcast where he literally says, Joe, I cannot talk about what's bad about yes, poor Yes, I have seen that. It's so spooky. He's like, I will get killed. It's I have like, seen what that. What the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? It's, yes. like, it's on fucking Rogan. He says, I can't talk about it. So like, I think what he's... I think there's like a big mushroom lobby or somebody <laughs> yeah. who's like, don't talk about portobello mushrooms as being bad for humans. Like there are compounds in mushrooms that could potentially be harmful. This is a crazy clip of Paul Stamets. Yeah, you should actually check out this clip because he like he's singing about mushrooms the entire time. Uh, he has this beautiful experience, I believe, in a tree that that cures his uh, I want to say stuttering problem. Um, and they move into portobello mushrooms, and he clams. He's like, I can't talk about it. What the and he's fuck? like, can I? Add? And he's like, next question. Like, I won't talk about it. It's crazy. It's everyone's kind of like, what the fuck just happened? And then nobody's ever, nobody ever says anything. It's just, it's just become become forgotten. And the so propaganda yeah. is nuts. I have seen that clip. It's a crazy clip. clip. But we we know that they they contain a garotene and other compounds. So to me, I, I love these conversations because it's just this is this is why I do the work I do. Why are you taking lion's mane? Right? Oh, I want to be more clear headed fucking go to sleep you know <laughs> like stop fucking around with blue light at night stop eating garbage food you know like stay off tiktok stay off tiktok at night yeah. stop fucking with your circadian rhythm eat actual meat and organs with nutrients that support your brain it's people just want this they want to fix something without actually the root cause and it's oh it's in vogue to eat some lion's mane or some reishi or some cordyceps it's it's just and i think there's Fix the fucking root cause. This is, it's just the, it's the turmeric illustration that's exactly the same thing, right? Why do you have inflammation? Why do you have joint pain? Because you're leading a shitty life. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're eating garbage foods and you're not moving actually enough and you're not getting enough vitamin D, you're not getting in the sun, you don't have enough nutrients to support your joints or the healing of those joints. Don't take turmeric, just actually fix the root cause. So people say, oh, well, lion's mane has been studied in people who have dementia as they age. Okay, great. There's a compound in there that may be helpful for humans. But we could also, there's a lot of things that can improve dementia as you age. Doing more puzzles does the same thing. Having community does the same thing. Eating more meat and organs does the same thing. So just because this, this mushroom that like we're kind of turning a blind eye to the potential bad things in there, um, does it doesn't mean that we should be taking it every day chronically, even if you don't have mental health issues or mental cognitive issues. And I'll just make the delineation now for people so they are clear on this. This is sort of the way that I think about plants is that you have to understand that plants have an intelligence, fungi have the same intelligence, they do not want to be eaten. Animals don't want to be eaten either, but animals can move, and they can yep. bite you and kick you and get away from you. You try and pet a dog that doesn't want to be petted, they're not going to be happy with you. You try and actually walk up to a deer, good luck. They're either going to gore you or kick you or just run away. Plants can't do that. They're stuck in the ground. So plant intelligence leads to defense chemicals. <laughs> fungi are stuck in the ground they're going to need some defense chemicals to prevent humans from just eating them or any animal from just eating them and using them to, to, to feed themselves. And this, you get this warfare, right? You get this sort of chemical warfare between organisms that want to eat plants and fungi and the actual plants and fungi. And so that's where I think, be careful. Like we just need to examine it one more step and think, should I really be eating the leaves of a plant like kale and thinking this is the best food in the world for me? No, I don't, I don't think there's, yeah, it has some vitamins. Great. There's other ways to get those vitamins in much more bioavailable forms with much more, with a broader array of vitamins like we talked about with animal meat and organs and without the defense chemicals that are often found in plants that could be causing problems for humans that they don't even know about. That's where people, I think, run into problems is they think 
like you've said, Jack, they're eating a salad. I feel great, but my stomach hurts all the time. But it couldn't be the salad because it's the most healthy thing in the world for me. Yeah. Often the solution for people with GI issues is eat more fiber, eat more vegetables. Well, probably the vegetables are causing the issue because it's indigestible fiber or something in the vegetables is causing the gut to be irritated because there are a lot of compounds in vegetables, vegetables being leaves, stems, roots, and seeds of plants, seeds being seeds, nuts, grains, and beans that are there to damage the gut. That's just what they were designed for by the plants. If you study botany, it's there to piss these organisms off and say, don't eat me without regard to my toxicity. So that's, that's my long-winded answer for mushrooms. It's like, yeah, there's benefits, just be careful. Yeah. I think of them like the way that I think about most plants, medicine, maybe not food. Mm. Medicine, not food. Got it. Yeah. Because I've switched recently from coffee to now mushroom coffee. Why? I just randomly. That's I don't know. the only health I've decision just, you've made in your life. No, I've made a, I've made a, I've, <laughs> I made a few, but that's one I made recently. Uh, but it sounds like what you're saying is I should probably stay off TikTok at night and sun my balls in the morning and I'll be fine. Better in terms of, <laughs> I mean, I think that the coffee's an issue, right? Coffee is often moldy, pesticides. The caffeine has a quarter life of 12 hours, which means it can affect people who are quite sensitive and interrupt sleep patterns. So I don't, I'm not a fan of coffee at all. Oh, actually, there was a why. It was, it was, it was, I was looking into coffee bean production, and it's very, like, f on net, it's, like, f incredibly fucked. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it may not be the most responsible thing to do, and I think that coffee bean production, I don't think coffee is a great, is a health food for humans. People would debate me on that and hand me a stack of studies, and I'll just show them the half-life of caffeine and say, you, there's no way that you're drinking coffee in the morning and not affecting your sleep architecture at night. And, yep. you know, most people on the planet are not drinking pesticide-free, wet-processed coffee that's mold-free. All coffee's going to have acrylamide, blah, blah, blah. So it's just... How bad is alcohol? So the, I'm far from perfect. I don't want to pitch myself as such. The two things that I knowingly do to harm myself, I still drink coffee and I still indulge in alcohol. How bad is alcohol? It's not great. I mean, there's studies that even an average of one drink per day, so seven drinks per week, is associated with thinning of the neocortex. And we know that alcohol is directly toxic to the GI epithelium. So, like, probably any significant amount of alcohol other than, like, a sip or two is you know that that's causing harm to your gut. But, look, it's a quality of life equation. and Yeah, we talk about that. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You it's, don't have to be perfect. It's just my yeah. goal is not to convince people to be puritanically perfect. It's just to say, hey, here's an educational piece that you can use if you're having issues. You have to make the decision about where your highest quality of life is. I think that's a reasonable goal. Yeah. And, and if your highest quality of life is, hey, I can have a drink with my friends once or twice a week, doesn't really lower my quality of life with gut issues, then great, do it. But just know that if you have gut issues, cutting out alcohol is probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, if, I mean, for me, it's more the, man, like this has been so empowering for me of like, Owning something like Bitcoin and doing an animal-based diet gave me the confidence that I can control my own outcomes. Because you do feel like yeah. growing up in, at least I keep referencing my own generation, you feel victim to, I don't know how I'm going to get a house. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to sleep. I don't know if I was born with depression. And this gave me the little bit of confidence and proof that like, no, no, I don't give a fuck Biden, whoever gets elected or what they do with the dollar. Like, Progress starts with me owning my own shit. And that's my message to my generation is don't be a bitch. You, <laughs> you own the outcomes of your own life. No, I'm sick of these kids. Like, oh, it's not fair. It's plenty fair. You get to be alive. That's plenty fair. That's plenty fair. Um, own harder money uh, that acts in your own best interest and be responsible about what you put in your body. It's 
that's plenty fair. Without that, there's no president that's going to fix your goddamn problems. I think it's cool to think about people reclaiming their sovereignty. Yeah, Sover- sovereignty is a word that gets yeah. used a lot in, in the Bitcoin communities, and it's like, look, you you can reclaim your health sovereignty, just like you can reclaim your sovereignty right. over your money. You can reclaim your health sovereignty. That's that's what I'm all about. Like, that's right. You have the ability to affect these things. You're not powerless. Try it for a month. That's the other thing too. Is the results are immediate. Yeah. And immediate is in like a month. So don't a few days. You might like feel a little different. But thirty days out of your life. I'm looking at the uh, life expectancy in front of me. Even though it's crashing like a shitcoin chart, it looks like a, a altcoin scam crashing to zero. But it's still hovering around 75 or 76. So if you live 76 years, one month, just give it a try. Come on, Dylan. We'll vlog it. Give it a try. I'll give it a try. Days. We'll report back. Content. 30 days. We'll report back. Content. I love you it. too, Scooty. <laughs> um, all right. I think uh, we got a flight. Yeah. Let's do it. I'm glad we sat back down. Yeah. Thanks God, God, I could do it forever, man. Rad. Thanks, Dr. Paul. Of course, guys. You're welcome. <laughs>